All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 28 of Sports Cards Live. We have a great show coming up tonight. My guest this evening is Grant Sandground, Director of Product Development for Upper Deck. Before we bring Grant out, I do want to, as always, thank my last couple of guests. A week ago today, we had Adam, who goes by The Real 27 Guy on Instagram, had a great episode. That was a week ago. That was episode number 26, and it lives on the YouTube channel. Also want to thank Chris Barr from Panini, the manager of uh, basketball products, and he joined me on Saturday for episode 27. Both of those episodes, as I said, they live on the YouTube channel. You can go view them anytime so please check those out along with, you know, this right now, this is episode 28. So there's 27 episodes back there for you to go check out at your own, uh, whenever works out for you, whenever it's convenient, please do check those out. Uh, a, week, a week from today will be Dr. James Beckett, episode number 30 of Sports Cards Live. Somewhat of an anniversary episode, and I'm super uh, honored and pleased and happy to have likely the most iconic name in the hobby joining me for the 30th episode. So that will be a week today. That is on July the 22nd. However, this Saturday, I'm going to be freestyling it. Don't have any guests lined up, so we'll see what comes of it. But um, I'm going to plan something, so be sure to check that out as well. And then after that, the two, uh, the two, when the Wednesday and Saturday after that, I'm going to be on holidays. So there will likely be no shows on those two dates. Um, if you're new to Sports Cards Live and you're joining us because you saw Upper Deck tweet something or put it on Instagram and you want to watch this interview with Grant Sandground tonight, um, welcome to Sports Cards Live. It's a pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, please do, if you haven't yet, if you'd consider subscribing to the YouTube channel, I would greatly appreciate that. I want to thank Grant and Upper Deck for bringing new viewers to the show and for joining us tonight anyway. Um, hit 650 subscribers on YouTube, so thank you to everybody for that. And um, you know what? We're I'm looking forward to a great show tonight. So lots of insights, lots of information. Let's bring out the, our guest this evening, Grant Sandground. Grant, welcome to episode number 28 of Sports Cards Live. How are you doing this this evening, my friend? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, Jeremy. I appreciate it, and uh, I'm excited. Uh, Talk uh, hobby with you for the next couple hours. Yeah, man. Let, let's do it. Let's do it. So as I like to explain to the viewers, you know, we we actually go back to, I think we figured out it would be uh, the Expo Spring 2009. You had just joined Upper Deck. You joined Upper Deck in November of 08. And uh, you came to your first Expo as an employee of Upper Deck. You'd been there before because of your history in the hobby, which I'll let you explain. But, um, you know, we were kind of thinking, like, how do we how did we know each other? Because I feel like we know each other. And you reminded me that you were, you know, you just started. You were walking the floor. You had you had had some history at the expo. You'd done it with your previous employer. You were walking the floor and you I think you knew who I was. So you came over, introduced yourself and we've kind of known each other uh, ever since. Is that sort of how you remember it? Yeah, um, it goes back to the time that I uh, was with Beckett for many years prior uh, working with Upper Deck that. Jim Beckett would send us to shows around the world, literally around the world. Um, and uh, you, part of that was pre-internet and all that kind of stuff. The analysts would walk around the short, the uh, show floors and introduce themselves to the dealers and 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 talk about what's what's selling, what's hot, what's not. Um, and so I was kind of that was in my blood, uh, and I was looking forward to uh, meeting you and meeting uh, you know many of the other dealers at the show at that time. So. Yeah, it was just, uh, here I am. Hi, I'm Grant, Rupert Deck. 
How are you doing, yeah. Jeremy? Yeah, right on, man. I do remember that. And uh, I was kind of confused. I thought maybe Chris Carlin brought you to introduce yourself to me, but but now it's coming back to me. And uh, and I, I, I do remember thinking to myself, you know, that's just great because Upper Deck, you know, the, 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 the main hockey cards of the time still to this day, of course, we've, you know, we've had the exclusive for a while. And I thought this, it's just awesome that the, the guy who they brought in to be the new director of product development is looking to meet the collectors, the fans, the, 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 the people who buy the products, hopefully to tap into our brains and, you know, try and serve us a little bit better. You were new to the job. You wanted to do as great a job as you could, I'm sure. So I thought that was awesome. Thank you for doing that way back in 2009. And, um, you know, it's 11 years later and here we are. So before we dive into specifics on Upper Deck right now, um, tell us a bit about your history in the hobby, sort of what got you into it in the first place, even before you worked at Beckett, your job a little bit, a little bit about your job at Beckett, how you got your job at Upper Deck and uh, and then we'll kick it in. Okay. So I uh, started collecting all the way back in 1977. So I'm going to date myself. Um, and that was the summer of Star Wars and I collected Tops baseball and star top Star Wars like crazy. I think I saw Star Wars nine times that year. I was a Dodgers fan. I grew up in Los Angeles in the suburbs of LA. And um, I was the one kid in our neighborhood that managed to complete the entire top set. Um, I remember Fran Healy was the last card I needed. And um, so I, I, got, I went, just went trading card crazy. I collected um, sports cards and non-sport cards. Um, I remember I was fortunate enough to be in LA. So we had shops all the way back in the 1970s. Max Himmelstein had opened Valley Baseball Cards in 1974 uh, in an area it called Encino or Tarzana for, in Los Angeles. Um, and I remember there was a shop that opened in 1979 near my neighborhood. And we would go to the card shop, Alan Kathy Baker's card shop. That's where I started um, like buying Beckett's and seeing the cards were worth some money um, and just got hooked. Um, you know, my dad would help me set up at uh, shows when I became a teenager. Um, I started working at card shops when I was about 14. My first job was at JJ's Budget Baseball Card Shop. And that was a gentleman by the name of Joel Hellman, a great, great guy. Um, he actually helped run some nationals back in the day. And he had a card shop in the, in the middle of San Fernando Valley that was connected to a batting cage. So it was just nirvana. It was perfect. You know, a 14, 15-year-old kid, I get to, like, work at a baseball card shop, and I get hours of free batting practice afterwards. Um, so that was my summer job. Uh, was And I quickly started buying and selling collections for the shop. Um, I bought mantle rookies, all sorts of stuff. In fact, uh, one summer I worked um shop hours to pay for a mantle 52 tops mantle that looked like a truck ran over it about 10 times but i had a mantle i had a 52 mantle i i, I wish i had the card today i don't have it today i think i sold it in college to make some money <laughs> um but after um high school uh went to uc santa barbara at college and i still i actually met some friends at college that were card collectors uh and i'm still friends with them some of them to this day which is which is great that's one of the great parts of this of this hobby is you make such great friendships. And um, there were two shops in Santa Barbara. Uh, I collected throughout um, college and I would set up, instead of working a, a job to, to make some money uh, after classes, I would just set up at a card shop in either downtown Santa Barbara or I'd drive down to LA and set up at a show there. I'm sorry, I set up at a show and you'd have to buy the Beckett and you could do pretty good. You make a thousand bucks, a couple thousand bucks on a good show, even when I, you know, back in the late 80s when I was doing this. Um, and I was in my senior year 
and I read an owner's box of the baseball magazine uh, that Jim Beckett had written. And he, the basically the gist of it was, I'm hiring. I need people. Um, and this was just around the expansion when he was going into starting the hockey magazine, starting the football magazine, and starting the basketball magazine. So that's why he needed some bodies. Um, and I was a radio TV film major. I was a senior at UCSB, and I was, you know, interning and doing everything I could and interviewing to try and, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm going to graduate in four months or whatever it may be. I need to try and get a job in the film industry. And so I read this owner's box. I stopped. I'm like, this is a job? This is a thing? Like I can price baseball cards for a living? Really? I'm perfect for this. I worked at card shops for the past five years. I've collected for forever. So I wrote, um, you know, I wrote a cover letter, put together a resume. And my dad at the time, he told me, make sure your resume stands out. So I bought this garish yellow poster tube and I did a big drawing of Michael Jordan. I did a lot of art studio back in college. I've loved art history. I've always loved art history and art studio. Um, and so I drew Michael Jordan, rolled it up in the poster tube, put my resume and cover letter in there and off I sent it to Dallas, Texas. Lo and behold, a couple weeks later, I get a phone call um, and it's, it's Beckett. It wasn't Jim Beckett, but it was, you know, some representatives of Beckett. And I had a couple of phone call interviews. Um, and uh, one thing led to another. Uh, two weeks later, I, they had bought me a ticket to fly to Dallas for an interview. Uh, this had gotten to the point in time where I was studying for finals. Like I was cramming for finals ready to, you know, it was crazy to think, oh my gosh, I, I have a shot at getting a dream job that I never even thought was a job. Uh, they flew me out to Dallas. I'd never been to Dallas a day in my life. I thought there were shootouts at high noon in Texas and rolling tumbleweeds and all that stuff. Um, blazing hot, just blistering hot heat. I don't even know what it was in Celsius, but 105 Fahrenheit, like 38. I don't know. Yeah. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> I had a suit and tie, big tie on. And it was a two day long interview um, and things went well. You know, I was um, I was of the mind that I was going to tell them uh, the things I thought they were doing right, the things I thought they were doing wrong, because uh, I thought that they did want to hear the candid feedback and to hire someone who had an opinion on things. Um, and that's what Jim was Jim Beckett was ultimately looking for. So one thing led to another. They gave me the, uh, the job offer. So um I, I graduated college, took about two to four weeks off to pack all my stuff and moved from, uh, you know, from Santa Barbara to Dallas, Texas at the age of 22 and started with them in 1990, um, the summer of 1990, like July of 1990, I remember. So that was a long time ago that I started working for Beckett. Um, and I was an analyst. I, I um, worked on the baseball price guide. I wrote the market watches. I did the hot list and wrote all the market watches. Uh, for baseball, basketball, and hockey for many years. Um, I wrote features because I really like writing. Uh, in fact, something I don't get to write very much anymore, but I guess I get to talk now. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I wrote a lot of features. I, I, all, all in all, I was there for 18 years at Beckett. It was a great experience. Um, we got to do stuff like um, I helped start the BGS grading. Uh, that was in like 1998. They stuck three of us in a room for like six months and that was uh, two other um, of my uh, friends, uh, Mark Anderson and Dan Hitt at the time. The three of us kind of were tasked with coming up with the concepts of like, what should the holder look like? And I always remember I, I, I really didn't like the holders from the competitors at the time because they click clacked around and I wanted that internal sleeve. I wanted the four system grading. So I came up with these algorithms and worked on algorithms for way too long. Um, but all that was great too. 
Um, had a great experience at, at Beckett. A um, lot of great people that are working all over the industry now. Um, uh, and uh, it's just great to see the alumni kind of, you know, and I still keep in touch with Jim to this day. You know, I had lunch with him prior to the pandemic starting. I was in Dallas in January. We had lunch and, and we still keep in touch. Um, but I got the opportunity to um, move back to, uh, to California and uh, start working with Upper Deck in 2008. I had reached out to Carvin, a uh, good friend of mine and, and uh, obviously a, a guest of yours in your uh, prior episodes and, um, you know, a very important hobby person in his own right. Uh, and he was um, running the, well, I don't know if he was, I think he was overseeing some of the product development at Upper Deck at the time, I think along with Joe Fallon. Um, but I had reached out to Carvin and um, one thing led to another. They flew me out for the interview. Um, things went well. They offered me the job and I uh, up and moved with my wife and kids from Dallas to beautiful San Diego, California, where I live now. Uh, and I've been at uh, Upper Deck ever since. And um, when I got hired at Upper Deck, I actually was hired as the baseball uh, product manager. And that was, uh, as, as we all know, a short-lived, ultimately short-lived tenure from late 2008. And it was about two years of baseball that I worked on. And it was crazy times. I mean, the, the licenses were coming and going, and, and there, there was a major recession. It was just crazy stuff. But we had we had put together some really cool stuff. Um, I remember, I'll tell you an interesting story. Have I told you I'm a bit of a talker? Uh, uh, hey, no, you didn't, but Billy kind of warned me. <laughs> I'll tell you an interesting story. When I flew in for my job interview with Carvin and with Jason Mashra and, and several other people, I had already kind of written down like on four pages of notes, the concepts for Goodwin Champions. I had that in my mind. I'm like, you're not just going to interview me. I got a product in my back pocket ready to go. I'm good. You hire me. I, I got this idea. You know, I, I really wanted to do, I had been working for years prior um, at Beckett, I had worked on the Beckett graded magazine. I don't know if you remember that magazine from like 07, 08. Yeah. That was my, like my baby for a couple of years. And I researched all the E cards and the W cards and the R cards and the T cards and all that stuff uh, backwards and forwards and not just baseball. It was waterfalls and bears and Eagles and civil war generals and, you know, all the weird stuff that tobacco cards have. Uh, and I spent years archiving it and, and just, um, building that database and that price guide uh, for the graded magazine. So I had immersed myself in all that vintage material. And I thought to myself, I really want to do it. Obviously, Ginter had been had come out in 06 and had done really well. And I thought that was really cool. They took a baseball product, kind of honoring tobacco era stuff uh, and threw in some weird stuff. And I'm a big fan of weird stuff. Um, but I thought it could get weirder. Um, and I really wanted to basically, the idea was I wanted to take butterflies and instead of like, a tobacco card that had a picture of a bird on it or a picture of a butterfly from a hundred years ago. I wanted to stick a real butterfly in there and, and tarantulas and centipedes and creepy crawlies that make you go eek in the night. I wanted to have a water cooler kind of conversation on cards and stretch the boundaries for what people thought cards could be. I really wanted to do that. Um, so I had all these ideas for good one when I came in the interview and I said, I got all this stuff and I've done all this stuff. Um, and it went pretty well. So I, you know, they were, they encouraged me a lot. They're like, yeah, let's do this good one. This sounds awesome. You're a crazy man, but let's do this. Um, and, uh, so we started building Goodwin, Um, and I was doing all these baseball sets. Um, by about 2010, 
uh, Carbon had decided to pursue other opportunities. I think he had moved over to GTS at that point in time. Um, and I jumped at the opportunity right away. Uh, I'm like, I want hockey. I want it. I can, I, I can, I know I'm going to do it well. I worked for years on uh, the hockey price guide at Beckett. I did the market watches there. Um, I think the collector is similar to baseball. It's like a, a set collector and a player collector. Um, there's similarities there. I think I could build a good product for you. And so I jumped at that opportunity. I got the opportunity and started working essentially on the hockey calendar uh, and Goodwin Champions. Uh, for That's kind of how I started my career. One thing led to another. Um, I got some opportunities to get promotions um, and kind of uh, add some managerial responsibilities, hire some people, bring in some fine folks like Billy Celio and Tony Siriani and, and JT Strasnick over the years uh, and build our staff. Um, you know, so now um, uh, my current position is, is director of product development. Um, and I, you know, I have a lot of managerial stuff. I oversee um, more of a wider scope of the products, but uh, my nature is sort of granular. I, I'm, I always love the details and, and love things. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and really love to get things right. So, um, you know, fortunately we've got a great staff at Upper Deck that's very passionate about what they do. Um, and, and I get the ability to kind of, you know, work with them on, on their projects and kind of we bat back and forth on ideas. I, you know, I'll make sure everything looks okay under the hood and kind of play devil's advocate with them, asking questions about stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's been great. Well, wow, man. Th thanks for that intro. That was amazing. Um, uh, you know, this hobby is built on nostalgia, I think at the very beginning. And when you were talking about how you were writing the hot lists in, in Beckett, back in the, you know, in 80, in 90, 91, those first years with the hockey magazine. I mean, I remember just like the viewers out there watching with us right now, I remember reading those and really that hot list was so important every month. That's what, that's what you hung your hat on. And, uh, and I remember reading those and, and, you know, I didn't know who wrote them at the time. I thought they were, you know, I, who, who knew? And now to be sitting here chatting with you, I mean, even, you know, and the, the my viewers know for the most part that I do spend time with the, with the guest a night or two before and get to know them a little bit better and you know hear some stories. But you didn't tell me that story in preparation, so I was I was listening like I was just on the edge of my seat there. Then that you know it makes those memories a little bit neater now that I now that I know you and uh, and I'm chatting with you even tonight. Um, and even those magazines now just became and I have them still. They became more special to me just knowing that you were writing those hot lists that were. That was the highlight of the month for me back in 1990, 91, 92, and those in the boom years back then. So that that was awesome. So, okay. So thank you. You've taken us through your history in the hobby, your job at Beckett, which sounds like, like I can only imagine, I would have been so jealous of you had I known what you were doing back in the early 90s, because that was my dream job at the time too, was to work at a Beckett or an Upper Deck or a, or a Tops or, or whoever. So just awesome. Just awesome. So you know, I had Billy on. Billy uh, works with you. He's on your team. I believe he reports to you. And he took us through sort of how do you build a set? And he took us through that in pretty in, in, in much detail uh, on episode 15, which is a couple months ago now. So I call, I'm kind of calling that like making cards level one. I'm, I'm going to refer to our discussion as level two because we're going to talk about more details in terms of, you know, the list that you and I are ready to discuss in terms of sort of a few criteria, a few different points in terms of making the cards. But before we do that, we're going to just say hello to the, the viewers we have right now. So uh, Scott, Scott is always here. Scott, welcome. Ziggy is here. Welcome, Ziggy. Good evening. Ernie, you like the shirt. I think you're talking about mine. 
This is the uh, Eat Sleep Break Repeat Upper Deck shirt that I was I got at the expo last time. So, and I, I always say if if I'm have, if I'm interviewing a guest who works for a company and I have one of their shirts, I'm going to wear the shirt. I don't mind doing that at all. I, I enjoy it. The sports hobbyist is in the house. Welcome, sports hobbyist. Anonymous Facebook user says my Jets jersey behind me right there should be number nine. That's a game used Teppo Newman in jersey number twenty seven. He was actually the last player that skated off the ice ever for the Jets 1.0 on April 28th, 1995, 1996, I guess it was. Anyway, uh, Jeff is super hyped for this one. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, name, good evening. Amit is there. Amit, hello and welcome. Ronnie, welcome. I think Brian is trying to guess uh, uh, what team you are a fan of. He thought the banana slugs, and he says the gauchos. Go, go. I don't know what that is. But it's a gaucho. It's the gaucho. There you go. There you go. Ziggy says, amazing guest tonight. Wow, thank you. I got to agree with Ziggy on there. And I mean, I knew you'd be an amazing guest, Grant, but from your 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 18-minute intro, I'm I'm even more, I, you're even more of an amazing guest than I thought you were going to be. Scott has a quick question here. Since you wrote the hot list, could you explain how a player could be on both the hot and the cold lists? Hello, I don't know. Did that ever happen? Oh, yeah, for sure. Greg Jeffries, right? Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it basically, they were popularity lists. And if somebody was polarizing... Um, the very original hot list and cold list were simply compiled by people that sent in lists of 10 players they thought were hot and 10 players they thought were cold. So if Greg Jeffries or Eric Davis or someone like that was of the moment, they simply compiled, you know, statistics on both columns for hot and cold and Jim pushed out those lists. What I did by 1990, I actually got to the point where I was writing, you know, when we would do the hot list, it would actually picture the cards and it'd be 20, 10 or 20 cards. And then we would write a little accompaniment like the market watch. And that's the stuff I really love doing. And, and in fact, I want to do one little um, point about the hot list. The big debate we had back in, in, in Beckett was, is a card, what's a, what's a hotter card? A card that um, like a Barry Bonds tops traded back in the day where the volume trading was massive or perhaps like a Fleer glossy Bo Jackson that may have gone from $5 to $25 in one month, but the trading volume was much thinner. And I'm sure that could relate to today's market. Like, what's a hotter card, a Connor Young Gun or a Connor Cup rookie? Um, you know, there's never an easy answer on that one. But I always kind of lean towards the total dollars that were that were um, being traded on that card. So I typically really like if there was just page after page after page of top traded Barry Bonds or now Connor Young Guns or whatever they may be. I always lean towards those ones, kind of trumping the uh, the big jumpers that had lower trading. But it's an interesting debate. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's not necessarily the player who's hot or cold. It's the card. And that's why you could say, see the same player on both sides. So that definitely makes sense to me. Um, okay, we're getting a bunch of questions. There's an anonymous Facebook user. I don't know who you are. Um, your questions are just off point right now. So we're going to get into some discussion. And hopefully we'll get back to them. If not, feel free to ask them again. Cardboard Max is here. Welcome, Max. Uh, who else we have? Orv is here. Hey, hey, looking forward to another great episode. Thank you for joining. Scott wants to say thank you for that answer. Um, very much. That's awesome. Thank you, Grant. And Costa, well, I just, well, yeah, there's the, they're, they're coming in quick here. Costa says, 2020 Goodwin looks good. Glad Bianca has an auto and those cards sure look amazing. Awesome. Amit says, were you ever involved in the science of the determ of the determination of what is a rookie card? Great question. One I didn't think of asking you. Can you uh, help us understand what makes a card a rookie card? Yeah, very much so. And, and I was um, working for Beckett at the time 
when Beckett was this massively influential force in regards to what did what was officially a rookie card. These days, it's much more open and interpreted um, because there's just so much being traded on eBay and so much being traded in many other mediums. But back in the 80s and 90s, if Beckett had the RC tag next to it in print, it was a rookie card. That's what everyone thought. Um, and we had lots of internal debates about that. But technically, what the 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 official description that Beckett went by was a parallel was not a rookie. It had to be part of the base set. It had to be part of the base set. Um, there was, I remember some interesting debates when Kobe, um, Kobe Bryant had his rookie cards and he had a bronze rookie card in finest. And he also had that scarcer gold card. I'm sure you could probably kind of jog your memory a little bit with that one. That was the first time we saw at Beckett, uh, a player, a rookie having two different cards checklisted within a continuous, let's say 200 card set. Um, and we, that, you know, sometimes the manufacturers would always kind of force us to redefine and, you know, huddle back up and, and talk about it for hours. And we, ultimately we just called the bronze card, the rookie card, I think back in the day. Um, but it's kind of interesting now on the other side of the fence, because I know that background, you know, I came to upper deck thinking, Ooh, let's mess around with the rookie rules here. We'll do this and we'll do that and see how they deal with it. Okay. Well, hey, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's just neat to have, you know, these are questions that are pervasive across the whole hobby. So it's, it's, it's awesome to have you here. Glenn says a uh, great start could be the first show to hit three hours. I don't know that you have three hours tonight to spend with us, uh, Grant, but I do know that, uh, that my episode with Dr. Price did actually last about, about three hours. So um, this would be the second one if you're willing to stick around that long with us. Um, okay. So, you know, you, you come from the background of Beckett, Upper Deck. Now, what, what in your opinion is like the difference between hockey products and other sports, particularly like basketball right now? Because basketball is, seems to be leading the market. What, do, you, do you sense a difference in terms of the way you would build a product for the different sports? And is there a difference in the collector? You know, it's interesting because I was watching Chris Barr's show, uh, your show with Chris Barr last week, and he addressed that topic as well. Uh, and he's obviously deeply involved with those markets, given his history as a hockey collector and his current, uh, you know, working for Panini as a basketball product manager. Um, and I think, and, and Carvin had chimed in on that show as well. And I think we're all in agreement there. Basketball and hockey are as polarizingly different collectors as can be amongst the four major sports. Basketball is its own thing. It, it, it is entirely separate in regards to the lack of limits for how much someone will spend for a card um, and the fascination with colored parallels. Um, you know, it's really interesting to see how basketball right now is um, really de-emphasizing in, in several brands like Prism and, and um, Mosaic and, and some of those brands. Uh, revolution, the lack of importance of an autograph in the box and the importance of colored parallels. There are other brands like National Treasures uh, where the rookie auto patches still remains king. And, and um, But still, if you look at the basketball card collector, they're very happy chasing colored parallels, um, chasing PMGs, uh, chasing technology inserts, whereas um, the hockey collector historically – a, I think the buyer's been more conservative. You're not going to find someone that's going to just go crazy and throw $75,000 at a card in hockey. It just doesn't happen. It, it, it doesn't happen. And look what's happening with, with Zion rookies. Nobody expected the kind of money to be thrown out there and the, the, 
um, kind of complete readdressing of these ceilings uh, that were existent before, that's being shattered um, by a, a totally new user base. It's, it's new American users. Um, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and, and some of his uh, folks that follow him and, and a lot of new money coming in from North America um, and from obviously from the Far East as well uh, and the Japanese market. And I've actually um, I actually went to Japan. Um, I managed I begged Jim Beckett for two years. I had to beg him to send me to Japan because uh, I was doing the basketball magazine for Beckett back in 99, 2000. Finally, he sent me an 01. And I got to meet. Um, are you familiar with uh, Shuko Ueno uh, from Red and Blue R&B Twenty One? No. Oh, they were legendary. Every unbelievable card you could. They had like all the early cut signatures from baseball, like the early nineteen ninety eight Babe Ruth from UD Retro, and they had like the nineteen ninety nine Hall of Fame five way cuts. Wow. This was I don't even know his first name. It was just Mister Ueno. Was okay. uh, was his wife, and she spoke a little bit of English. Mister Ueno spoke no English at all. I had craziest dinner with them in Tokyo and they drove me around the streets of Tokyo and he showed me his collection up in his office. It was crazy. The stuff they had was nuts. Um, so my understanding of the basketball card collector goes way back. I remember talking to shop owners from Tokyo back in 1999 to see what was selling because the market was hot back then, but it's a different, in a way they're similar um, because the dollars were even the biggest dollars, even back in 1999, were in basketball. Just now, like now, the biggest dollars on individual cards are in basketball. Hockey, um, I think you've got some of the strongest collectors, some of the strongest team collectors, some of the strongest player collectors. You still, to this day, have set builders, which is amazing because set building is almost like a lost, forgotten art. Um, but you look, and, and baseball has that too. Um, you've got this continuity of, um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be partners with the NHLPA and NHLE. Uh, since 1990, I think we're, we're we have the longest standing te um, tenure as a licensee with them, going on uh, 30 years now. Wow. Um, but now you've got 30 straight years of hockey sets, and people have collected those sets. There's a reason Young Guns are so popular beyond just the player. It's because people build those sets every year. And you look at Topps baseball. How many of us have top sets from when we were kids? And you got this big long run of sets. Um, that's not like that in basketball, right? There just aren't collectors like that, or nor really in football. Um, so those are some of the, the major differences I see. Yeah, man, that makes sense. You mentioned that you know the amount of money that a hockey collector will will spend, and until this Crosby BGS ten just sold and the McDavid ninety seven of ninety seven of ninety nine cup RPA sold, those were both in the hundred and twenty five hundred and thirty five thousand dollar range. So we have seen a couple across that six-figure plateau, but just recently and just two cards, probably ever since the, the Gretzky PSA 10 sold for 450000 or whatever it was a, a few years ago. So interesting stuff. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to jump into one of these questions here because um, it's a good one, and it's one that I'd like to know about too. Uh, the, the anonymous Facebook user asks, what, when you're running a product like a FLIR Showcase or a Black Diamond that is, a you know, let's call the Black Diamond a fan favorite, FLIR Showcase, something that, com that comes around for a couple of years. Why do you why do you make, say, a FLIR Showcase for a couple of years and then it goes away for a few years and maybe or maybe not to come back? And then why do you what what causes the idea to change the format of a product like Black Diamond from, a, you know, a 24 or 36 pack product to a one pack or a hit product or something like that? Uh, it's a great question. Um, ultimately, it boils down to sales. Uh, you know, I loved FLIR Showcase. And I think um, 
I think it's a great sleeper product. Uh, uh, 2015 Fleur Showcase and 2016 Fleur Showcase and sealed boxes and some of the stuff in there. It's so uh, those boxes were so loaded. Uh, you know, we did them from 2013 through I think 2016, 17. We did Showcase, uh, and I was so excited for it. And when we brought Fleur Showcase to the forefront, we obviously were going on the legacy of the prior run of that product because it had stopped for a couple of years prior to that. And the big thing was it was going to have a rookie auto patch per box. And in hindsight, it's how can I say? There's a little cliche of you never want to let a kid have too much candy in a candy store because they're going to get sick. And if there's, it's kind of like that with trading cards, where yes, we're told oh, it'd be great if you put a rookie auto patch into every box. But what it does is you end up with three dollar rookie auto patch cards. So it takes a really important product driver uh, that this industry uses um, and kind of creates a new floor for its value, kind of devalues it, saturates it or oversaturates the market uh, with that rookie auto patch. And I think that was one of the major problems with Fleer Showcase. It was, it, was, it was built and hinged upon that one rookie auto patch per box. All the other stuff flowing around it, I actually liked kind of more. Um, oh, man. I'm, PMPs, I'm... I thought all the EX cards were really beautiful, especially the 2016 EXs. The 1617s were gorgeous. Um, and we put a lot of money into that tech, and it's killer stuff. I thought they were such good breaks, but at that time, that product just didn't resonate with people. The, the rookie auto patches were stickers. You know, there are people that will, you know, complain loud and long about sticker autographs um, on there. And it just did, ultimately didn't resonate. But now I bet if you go back and try some, find some sealed boxes of that stuff, it's going to be pretty expensive. That That is the stuff that is, in my opinion, is hot right now. I mean, that's what I'm chasing, the inserts the acetate cards from there, the essential credentials, the, the hot shots, the, I mean, there, there's, just, there's the jambalayas. I mean, all that stuff from, from those FLIR products. I love it. And I know a lot of, and that's part of what, you know, as far as, you know, basketball collectors, they, when they come over to the hockey hobby, that's what they're looking for. Cause that's what they're used to chasing the PMGs, the jambalayas, those, the essential credentials, that's what they live for in basketball. So they look for that in hockey. I hope I I hope we can see another. A, you know, I, it doesn't have to go away forever. Hopefully, we can see uh, you know it reinvented again pretty soon, or just another appearance. That would be that would be awesome. That that that's a do me a favor. Put something like that out. That'd be great. I'll buy it. Um, okay, so thank you for that answer. And I think that should uh, should. Can you actually speak to the black diamond piece? Black diamond. Black Diamond. Thank you for the for jogging my memory on it. Okay, so Black Diamond was another one that it had run from 1996 to I think 2014 was the last year that we did it in the standard 24 packs per box kind of format. I think thin cards, 20 point stock cards, that kind of stuff. And each year the sales were going kind of you know like this, just down, down, down. And I was thinking to myself, this industry it's so important for brands to have legacy and continuity. The more you know, uh, a brand can continue on on year 10, year 15, the better off everyone is, both the buyers and the sellers. So I thought to myself, you know, there's a lot of drum beats internally here to get rid of Black Diamond. And I'm like, uh, we shouldn't be doing that. We should look for a way to save it and, you know, give it a, give it a kind of a, a redo, uh, blow it up and rebuild it, but keep that brand. And we wanted to, um, Another, we were trying to kill two birds with one stone and solve a couple problems. A, we wanted to solve the sense of um, sort of boredom with Black Diamond that we were getting from the buyer. But B, we also wanted to put a high-end product, a super premium price point product early in the calendar. We knew from talking with distributors, talking with um, breakers, talking with shop owners, 
um, that they were constantly on us, like you got to get a high-end product earlier in the season. I don't want to wait till April to buy or May to buy a high-end product. I want to see something in December. Um, and I thought we thought to ourselves, okay, let's take Black Diamond. The whole product's called Diamond. We can make diamond cards. And I think I showed you a prototype a couple of days ago. I don't have it on me of an Alex Galchenyuk. We were working on diamond cards as early as back as like 2011 doing the prototypes, 11, 12. Um, so this idea wasn't just like, let's snap our fingers and do this in two months. But I knew I wanted to hinge a brand on a key rookie card that was not autographed and that had diamonds as the relics. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make four diamond, quad diamond, triple diamond, double diamond, and single diamond rookie cards, all numbered to 99. And those were going to be the key chase cards. And there was no autographs. Um, so we weren't beholden to agencies and athletes with if we had a deal or not. Uh, that was, and we can get into autographs later and how we build our calendar. I'd love to talk about some of that stuff and the importance of building critically important cards that don't have autographs. That's been our mantra and my mantra for the past 10 years. We started doing that. You can talk to anybody who's known me for a long time that I've thought for a long time, this industry has been um, leveraged too heavily in a crippling reliance on autographs with the athletes where it's, it's unhealthy. You need to find a balance and it's getting a lot more balance now with what we're seeing. But part of it with, with black diamond was we wanted to build that brand with a key rookie card. You got to have a key rookie card, right. And, and to kind of anchor your brand. Um, and we wanted to make them the diamond relics. We wanted it super premium. So we knew it, if it was early in the year, super premium, it had to be a sticker autograph. But the the fact that the most valuable cards didn't have autographs on them at all took some of the pressure off the fact that we were delivering sticker autographs in the super premium. We also trapped some of the autographs on black Avery labels. Avery labels is sort of that um, matte finished black paper that we'll trap and they'll sign with a silver paint pen. Mm -hmm. um, so it gives the feel that it feels like it's a little more closer to a hard signed card than a sticker, although it is a trapped card. Um, and we wanted to use a lot of the manufactured patches, uh, to build puzzles. That was the other big idea behind black diamond. We wanted to make these amazing puzzle patches because we thought team collectors would think that looks really cool. I want to build it. We, we knew if we could make something that was visually beautiful, just challenging enough, kind of like the old three bears and the oatmeal, not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too easy, just in the middle. Um, that those were the two and some of the learnings we got with manufactured patches we found with Goodwin earlier in the years when we had done Animal Kingdom patches that sold for six hundred to a thousand bucks. We knew people would collect manufactured patches even though they were polarizing. Some people hated them, but the proof was in the pudding. When eBay, you could see like a patch of a chupacabra or a Pegasus selling for a thousand bucks. Money's money. This is working. So yeah. we took those two tenants and we knew we could do the manufactured patches early in the season as well um, and deliver a rebirthed black diamond in a super premium format early in the year. That, that's kind of how it came to be. So the important thing to take away for the people who collected it in its first form is that it was either lose it all together or have it reinvented, which is what you did. So if this thing was on the chopping block and you actually saved it from that and just recreated it in something new. What I like about it is that even back in the the mid to late 90s, you had the single diamond, double, triple, quadruple diamond versions of the cards. And so you actually, I just love how you took that and, and made it into actual diamonds that be, that got that were actually embedded into the card. Very, very creative in my in my opinion. I think that's that's awesome. So okay, great, great stuff. Great question from the anonymous Facebook user. I don't know who you are, but maybe you've told us lower down. We will get to that. 
Um, the same person has another question. We're gonna we're gonna go through the questions. And Grant, we may just have to abandon my notes because the questions are coming in, but we'll see how how it goes. So, the same person's second question is: the next NHL season isn't gonna start until January. What's gonna happen to Series One and its release date? Um, well, maybe January. Uh, the league wants December first, right? So, but who knows? Who knows how this virus is gonna is gonna play out? Um, but no, we're we're committed to releasing the product in its regular time slot, and obviously that um, begs the uh, the huge question: What are you gonna do with the Young Gun checklist? Um, and I know it's gonna frustrate people to no end, but I, I can't really speak to exactly what we're gonna do with the Young Gun checklist publicly at this time. But I can say that we're well aware of everyone's concerns, and we're we have no interest in releasing a dud. Put it that way. Well, hey. I'm, I'm appreciative that you can tell us anything. And, and I certainly understand you have some trade secrets that you got to keep to yourself. So feel free to do that throughout the show. And uh, but but feel free to give us as much insight as you're able to. So thank you for that answer. I hope that satisfies the, the person that asked it. Um, OK, what else do we have here? There's the <laughs> lots of questions coming through. Uh, I like this one. Grant Patterson says, so is this who I always get? confused with on breakers people thinking i'm the guy from upper deck yeah that would be it grant um ziggy has a question here which i think is a fun one he says with your background of the hobby and in and in movies have you considered making a documentary on the evolution of the hobby you could cover things like first autos refractors the economics have you ever thought about uh some sort of documentary or, or documenting your experience somehow uh no because i think i probably would bore people to you know mass board to, to sleep um, no, I've not. Uh, you know, I, I did, I was radio TV film, but by the time that I got the opportunity to work uh, at Beckett, I kind of abandoned that and I really pursued my passion. I love writing. Uh, I love the analysis of markets. I love number crunching. Um, I love people make fun of me about my Excel sheets. I have ridiculously complex Excel sheets that have like six years worth of data that I noodle around with and build and that's how I actually tracked uh, all the hockey prospects I've got. And that goes back to what we did at Beckett. We had rookie, we had Excel sheets with rookie groupings and we'd rank them from A through F and resort them. And we'd have every rookie from 1933 to present on an Excel sheet that I built. And I've got something similar uh, here at Upper Deck that we were tracking rookies and stuff. So, you know, I didn't really continue pursuing film or anything like that. I, I, I love trading cards. This is my life's passion and my life's work. Well, so down the road, if you ever want to kind of document it, perhaps we can have a series on this show and I can, I can work with you on that. You never know. Um, Bill wants to know, Bill collects uh, cards of play of people who are in the hobby, like not athletes, but you know, just people that are, that work in the hobby. So he wants to know, do you have any cards other than the 1992 tops national Atlanta hobby press card? How does he know I have that? <laughs> because he has all the, all of them. Anyone who's ever had a card, he this is what he does. He re, it's one of his uh, like people. Crazy, yeah. That's, it looks like I'm about 11 years old on that card, and I think the only copy I know is like still on my mom's refrigerator. Like <laughs> he, might have, he might have one too. So no other cards have come out with you on them since then. Is that correct? Uh, I might have had one other card. Um, it wasn't as cool as a tops card. I, I think there was like a skybox card. I, I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. This one is from Billy. And this is another good question. I think a lot of people want to know this. And I think it ties into the whole world of redemption. So I'm going to pull it on the board. I'll read it out and we'll we'll go from there. 
Can you discuss the recourse of any if a player refuses to sign cards? Does the NHLPA get involved? Can a player refuse to appear in a product or are all of their rights part of the player deal? It's a, it's a really good question. Really good question. But as you might imagine, it's a sensitive question. Um, does the PA get involved? Very, very rarely um, will the PA get involved. And very rarely will we approach the PA with those kind of complaints. We, we try and keep our business in-house. Uh, and work really with the agencies. Um, uh, we've got good relationships with all the big agencies in hockey, uh, and we work through them. You know, once in a while you do get, you know, I mean, a lot of the hockey guys, they're, you know, they're pro athletes. Some of them are very young. They're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. I think all of us can look back uh, that are, are older now and, and think, well, that probably wasn't the wisest decision-making years of my life. And, you know, they, they may not you know, entirely honor the contracts or just blow it off. Um, a couple times that can happen. Uh, you know, the leagues really don't get involved with it. I mean, my gosh, I, I'd really have to think once or twice, maybe in all my years here at, at Upper Deck, have we actually kind of asked the, the PA just to maybe contact the agency or something like that uh, to help us, but very, very rarely. Um, you know, it goes into the nature of um, how you handle redemptions. And I've learned my lesson big time as to handle redemptions over the course of years. And that took years of time. We, we know which agencies are good. We now pretty much know which players are good. And the, oftentimes a good agent will make a player better in regards to signing. If they're really dialed in and the agents really are following up or responsive, the agents can vary. They can be very unresponsive or very responsive. Um, and that can help with the client's relationship as well. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. Um, Scott says the Crosby, this is back to, we were talking about the evolution of the definition of rookie card. The The McDonald's Crosby rookie card was sort of revolutionary in its time because there was a big debate. Should it be a rookie card? Should it not? And it ended up, Beckett gave it the RC designation. Um, I don't want to spend much time on that, but I just think it's an, it's interesting because, you know, it's this has been a raging discussion for so long. And personally, I think the definition is is too narrow. I'd like to see it broaden, similar to how collectors and basketball approach rookie cards. In any event, let's keep on going on. Um, okay, another anonymous, uh, the anonymous Facebook user is trying to get his name on the board, but I will I will read out his question. Have there been any thoughts uh, this year to having a playoff set because of all the, the COVID issues? What do you mean by a playoff set? I think he means a, a set just focusing on what's about to happen in the NHL when they're the, the return to play plan, a return to play set, if you will. I, 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 I think. Um, well, obviously, we do the game data moments. Players. Go ahead, Jeremy. Oh no! I think I thought I think there was a bit of lag. That's okay. I think I think the the fact of the matter is is that they're still going to be part of the nineteen twenty season. What's coming, and then you'll just go right into twenty one twenty two. We will move on. Uh, Costa says Jason Dominguez. Glad to see him in Goodwin. Very nice. Um, and then you know the the anonymous user says, uh, Have you guys thought of delaying some of the release dates of your products because of the lack of hockey? Can, can you hear me, Grant? Um, well, we are trying to strategic. Yeah, I can hear you fine. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Keep going. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we are kind of strategically, um, you know, putting out our products. And, and one of the good things during the pandemic, we weren't sure how this was going to work. We weren't sure how athletes were going to sign and return cards. 
We weren't sure how um, print vendors were going to be able to pack out products, um, how uh, we could ship products through FedEx and UPS. All that stuff was a great unknown. And I think we've been very fortunate and we're very thankful that we've been able to release products on a regular basis, like Ingrained and Today Stature and SPA, all the products that have released through the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we've got Ultimate on tap and Premier and, and the Cup, obviously. And those are all going to be coming out. They, they are going to be coming out probably a little bit later, but they're all going to, you're going to be getting hockey products throughout the course of the summer. Um, will we have to make some adjustments to the calendar? Probably, you know, uh, because there's still so many unknowns as to when the season will end. We know when the NHL wants the season to end, no later than October 4th. And we know when they want the draft to take place, the, the, I think October 10th and free agency on the 11th. All those are nice to have, but we don't know the nature of this virus and what's going to change. So we have to remain flexible with our release dates as well. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, the anonymous user is Dan Milburn. Dan, welcome to the show. It's so much nicer to know who I'm talking to and who we're responding to. So thanks for throwing your name up there. We're going to get to your next question. This is Dan's fifth question, and this is going to kind of fast forward us a little bit, Grant. So get ready for this one. It's about redemptions and specifically why can some take five years to get? And I know we spoke about this the other day, so you, you're prepared to discuss it a little bit. So please jump right in and, uh, Explain to the viewers why these things can take so long. Huh. Okay. I think a big part of it is because we had to go through some learning processes. The ones that are five years old now were kind of like 2014, 15, you know, and back then um, I, I've always been kind of central in deciding, well, who's going to be a redemption or, or not when you are really buttoning up all your content for a pack out, are you going to redeem this guy or not? And we were a lot more generous with our assessment of who we thought was a safe redemption back in those times, like players like Artemi Panarin or Max Domi or David Posternak or all those players who, if there was a postal office for the most wanted would be on there for terrible signers. Um, then in hindsight, we managed uh, we found uh, and, and worked through some strategies in uh, around 2017 forward. I think you, your viewers and yourself uh, would have noticed that our, our redemption rates were declining greatly by that point in time because we learned how to quickly identify who the bad signers were. They were typically were with kind of agents who were a little more you know, relaxed, uh, but some of them just come down to a human, you know, some rookies or some players just don't sign stuff on time or just may not just stop signing in the middle of a season. They'll just stop. Uh, and we've learned to be a far more proactive on it. We've learned how to make some strategies on it. Now, starting with 2017 forward, I'm sure you've seen the unsigned future watch of Jake DeBrusque. And then a year later, Oh my gosh, there's a signed one. Well, Jake DeBrusque was not the greatest signer. And we knew we, we, we paid a good deal of money and, and, and baked it into the way we build our products to build two versions of, of virtually every future watch rookie. Um, to have that insurance policy, that safety net of being able at the time of packout saying, okay, you've got 10 players, 10 rookies that have yet to return their future watch. Five of the agents, we, they're not even responding to us. We haven't talked to them in three weeks. What do you want to do? And in past years, you're forced to issue very risky redemptions, knowing that like, I don't know, maybe they'll return them. Maybe he lost them. Who knows? Um, but now, because you don't want to hold in the set, right? That would freak people out if you had a hole in the checklist of, of SP Authentic. So now we can issue 
essentially a stopgap of an unsigned card so the set builder can have that experience. We have experiences of players losing cards. They flat out lose cards. Full boxes of cards are gone forever. Um, and um, so now you won't have a hole in the set. If the cards do get returned later, we'll pack them out a year later because typically set builders are going to want everything. And if you go and look at the history of hobby, uh, of uh, collecting sets, there's all sorts of weird stuff where errors and variations made two versions of cards and people wanted them. They built the sets and they were completionists. So they'd go out and get all their 81 Fleer errors and their 81 Donruss variations, all that stuff. So I don't think it, it's weird, but it's not unprecedented to do those kind of strategies. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Justin wants to know, is there any potential for another release of Fleer Retro or even a first ever legendary cuts release? Uh, Fleer Retro is an interesting one because it touches on the nature of the Fleer brand as how does the Fleer brand play in the hockey market? And we've tried many times and typically the hockey collector is always sort of cast aside the Fleer brand name. Fleer is a, a massively important brand name, but it's massively important to basketball card collectors and to a lesser degree, baseball card collectors. It's never really resonated. It never had hugely impactful hockey sets in its past. So it's always been sort of um, a tough sell to a hockey consumer. And I think, as you stated, we I thought we built some pretty good products in, in the FLIR Showcase products we did in the, the mid-2015, 2016 kind of time span. I thought the cards were pretty, but the brand, it, it always kind of played against itself. So could we do another FLIR Retro? I, I'm not really dying to do another FLIR Retro. It's kind of been done. All those cards were done. Um, is there an opportunity for another FLIR-branded product? Uh, in the future, I think maybe because I'm a believer that this industry, every three years, something that was completely unacceptable three years ago, three years later, things have changed to the point where people are like, oh, maybe. And something that was maybe three years ago now is commonplace. So yeah. things change, perspectives change. And I think this massive like love affair with everything 1990s that's going on specific, specifically in, um, well, in every part of the sport, even in hockey, there are a lot of people that really love the 1990s uh, vintage uh, old school inserts and the chase cards and that stuff, but very much so we've seen including huge values in baseball and basketball that you never say never, that, that maybe there is an opportunity for us to kind of build something under that FLIR uh, branding in the future. Yeah, I would think now is the time because with, with all this, the growth, the boom in the hobby we're experiencing over the last year and specifically in the last three to four months, we're seeing a lot of basketball collectors looking at hockey and trying to find opportunities. And that's what they know are those FLIR inserts, you know? So, and the uh, fact it that, is. right. Then the fact that the showcase brands were, were a dud at the time, now they're having a bit of a resurgence. I know lots of collectors chasing those inserts that you love and that I love. And, uh, but back in the day, I didn't love them either. So, you know, it ties into this comment here. Um, first of all, uh, Legion says, I would love to see Fleer Showcase come back to replace Synergy. And then Amit says, I disagree. Synergy's a sleeper. I bet in 10 years that will become collectible. I will definitely pick up Synergy. And then Legion says, well, you're definitely in the mi in the minority. Well, that's, and it's, it's comments that's like, it, it's comments like Legion's that are going to lead to that being worth something in the future. Because, right, the less people like it now, the better it's going to be later. And I'm, I'm with uh, Amit or Hat Tricks. I, I, I love some. I love certain aspects of synergy, and I collect them, and I'm still chasing them to this day. And I'm hanging my hat on it that some of those are sleepers. They will be. They will be valuable and pursued more 
in the future. It may not be right away, but like you said, every three years, you see kind of tastes change a little bit. And I can see that happening. Um, okay. Uh, what is, what does Costa say? It's a cool idea how Upper Deck put FLIR PMGs in Upper Deck Series 2 and called them fluorescence. Can you, can you speak to that? I mean, they're not really FLIR PMGs. They're Upper Deck fluorescence. They, they might have some similarities, but let's face it. You only have two and a half by three and a half inches to work with. You have certain materials you can use. And you guys, now let me ask you straight out. Was that sort of an, an homage to the PMGs? Well, that was Billy's idea. Billy Celio, um, you know, uh, has been working. He has been the core product manager. I think he's listening tonight. So hi, Billy. Really, how you doing? Throw him under the bus. Throw him under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> he's a terrible guy. Bad guy. Uh, he has been, uh, you know, a, a great creative force uh, for our Upper Deck, the eponymous flagship brands of Upper Deck Series 1 and Series 2 for, oh, gosh, coming up uh, five years, I think. He's been running maybe more, maybe five or six years that he's been overseeing um, Series 1 and Series 2, which is a testament to the, you know, uh, how good he is that, uh, you know, he's got these important brands that he's been running. And, yeah, I mean, I, I bet I, – I know Billy. He wanted to add something cool and shiny um, that he thought would add value, content value uh, to it. So, yeah, you're just using the light FX technology with the etched light FX and the color and the tinted colorings on there. Okay, so it possibly was inspired by the PMGs, but – it was Billy's idea, so we'll, we'll we'll bring Billy on again to answer that question more directly for uh, Costa. Um, okay, uh, Scott says I love. I also love synergy when Patrick Wall was in it. Parallels and acetate rules, and I, I agree. I love low number parallels and acetate. So keep those coming, please. Um, I guess this must be uh, Dan Milburn says. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, I just, oh boy, lots of comments here. Here we are. Uh, shops are full of synergy because collectors don't like it. How about bring back showcase? Same comment, okay. Um, okay, I'm going to go back to my notes now, uh, Grant. Let's see what we can talk about next. So we talked a bit about, we're talking about autographs now. Talk a bit about past project autographs. What does that mean and why do they happen? Past project autographs. Autographs is a term we use internally at Upper Deck for cards, the autograph cards that were returned to us by athletes after a product had hit its packout deadline. So, and there are very good players that always do this to us. Patrick Kane, Sidney Crosby, those guys every year, they never return stuff on time. But conversely, we're very thankful to get Patrick Kane and Sidney Crosby to sign cards. So we're not going to say no. Um, and it got to the point where we knew back in 2014 or 2015, we would redeem Patrick Kane and Sidney Crosby. And we knew they're high risk, they're high risk redemptions. They never, they only return stuff maybe once a year, maybe twice a year at their own schedule. Communication with them is on their own basis and time. You can't really chase them down. Like you can be a little more aggressive with a rookie chasing down autographs than you can with Sidney Crosby or Patrick Kane. You just can't do it. They're going to do what they're going to do, and that's that. So um, we changed our, our strategy with that, thinking, well, do you want – and you, if they're holding on to those cards that long, there's a good chance they'll lose them too. That's for sure. People move. That Sometimes cards get sent to the arena. Seasons can come to an end. Things happen. It, it's a high-risk redemption for those guys. So I'm like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to stop. And I want to issue live cards of these guys by putting them in 
to next year's product. And yes, I know that's got some downsides. I absolutely know it's polarizing in people. Some people hate it. But in my mind, I'd rather pack out a risk-free live Sidney Crosby autograph or Patrick Kane autograph uh, that gives you that immediate sense of satisfaction and that wow factor right there. And I'm thinking pretty sure when people hit that card, they're not thinking the first thing they think is it's a year old. They're just thinking, wow, I got a Crosby autograph. And I'm thinking, wow, I don't have to worry about a high-risk redemption that may never see the light of day. I, I was, I wanted to flush all that stuff out. All those, the question earlier about five years of redemptions, I, I never want to see that again. And hopefully all some of the redemptions we've been issuing in, since 2017, 2016, 17 forward are all getting fulfilled in a much more satisfying fashion. Like hopefully in my mind, if we have to issue a redemption, it's getting fulfilled within a couple of weeks by the time you see the product live. Because we're we're that close with that that player, not years away. So I don't typically redeem Crosby. You don't see Crosby redemption, so we pass project them. What we call pass projecting him. And yes, not all pass project cards are Sidney Crosby. I get it. Yes, there is players of I don't know Troy Terry or someone like that. Troy Terry was a terrible signer, by the way. Um, and um, but we're we still we had to pay Troy Terry for those cards. It, we have to operate with margins of profit. We have to use the cards. Will we try and use Troy Terry as a bonus autograph? Yes, absolutely. We'll try to. Do we have the ability to do it every single time and every single product? We don't. Sometimes we've got to hit the requirement of one autograph per box. And if you broke, broke your OPG Platinum box and you got an autograph of Logan Brown from last year, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. But we do try and balance that out. Believe it or not, we have very complex formulas for collations in our products. Very good chance if you got a Logan Brown autograph and OPG Platinum that you got a really good numbered parallel unsigned card because we we um we pair them we pair the assets to try and build quality boxes throughout. That's good to know. That's interesting. Okay, uh, I guess this Dan Milburn said so. Now I cannot afford Black Diamond doesn't really help. I'll I'll take this one, Grant, because you know it was either no Black Diamond or the reinvented Black Diamond, and if the reinvented Black Diamond isn't for you then find something else to collect is my, and I'm not, I'm not upper deck. So I might be a bit more blunt than Grant would be. You might, Grant might be a little bit nicer in the answer, I guess. But in my opinion, it's like, well, too bad, Dan, find something different to collect. Like they, they're making their business decisions and they can't satisfy everybody all the time. So uh, Ben Kingsley says me hockey, dumb, dumb, but me learning. Uh, welcome to the shine. Welcome to the show again, Brian. Uh, what was the first year upper deck hockey had autos? I have quite a few. Um, I believe it was 97, 98 was the first year there were autos in a pack, but we can have someone research that and let us know. Okay. Uh, and Rich Barone, Rich Barone, my brother, welcome to the show as always. Love to see you and that will never change. Jeff says, we'll call you Mr. Data now, Grant. So let's get the biggest question out of the way. Oh, I didn't read this first. So let's see what it says. How big is the financial implication if Alexis Lafreniere goes to Montreal or Toronto compared to Phoenix or Minnesota? This guy right here. <laughs> um, it's massive. It's obviously massive. And I'm sure the conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, when when the number one pick in the draft went to TBD, were all, oh, this is going to be good. You know, is this another Patrick Ewing, New York Knicks scenario where there's all these conspiracy theories that it's all set up that a big market, the right market gets the right player. And obviously, you know, I think Montreal would be the absolute best case scenario all of us could hope because Alexi is French Canadian. And I, I think the entire city of Montreal would just blow their heads would all blow up on massive. 
you know, on uh, you know, October 10th if Montreal's name gets pulled. And yes, you, you know, I was reading a string today, I think, on, on Hobby Insider about what would the Alexis Young gun be if he's on this team versus that team. And one of them was like Columbus, 40 bucks. And, you know, and the other one was like Montreal, 500 bucks or something like that. Uh, and, and that's just um, one small metaphor for how big the financial implications would be uh, for Alexi going to a market like Montreal or, or, or Toronto. Those are the two huge markets, although, although there are other markets that would be very strong. Uh, Pittsburgh wouldn't be terrible or Vancouver or any of those markets versus Arizona or Florida, I think, are the two that people are like, oh, gosh, please no. Right. Um, but, you know, I wonder that it did when zion williamson went to the new orleans pelicans do you think basketball collectors are like yeah new orleans well, what a market couldn't have been better because new orleans is like you know one step above sacramento for the market <laughs> and it didn't matter because zion was a force of nature you know if alexi go gets you know uh picked by arizona and goes you know goes thomas hurdle on us and has four goals in his first game and you know, it just plays out of his head. I think you might see a player outperform a market and people are going to just be, you know what? This kid's amazing. He's amazing. He's inspirational. I, I watch his highlights. I want to watch his games. They're going to find a way to get Arizona games on TV more often. And, it, you know, so there's a chance that no matter where he goes, he may outplay his market. Yeah. If he's that good, he could potentially do it, and then maybe it won't make it, it won't make a difference to the values of his cards, unless he was in a Montreal or a Toronto or even a Chicago or a New York Rangers type of scenario. Um, there is an interesting point when you look at Jack Hughes. Jack Hughes had a disappointing season in a market that is not great. New Jersey's typically been a very low-scoring, defensive-minded team, lacking a superstar since probably Brodeur. Yeah. Um, but what really hurt Jack Hughes was the team was a hot mess. I mean, he just had nobody to play with. Arizona, like a team like Arizona and Florida, I'm sorry, but Barkov's a pretty good player. And, you know, there's some talent in Arizona and, and there's some they're better teams. I think that um, Jack Hughes really had a couple things going against him. You, you know, he's, he's not the biggest player out there, but he had nobody to really play with. And I think that hurt. So that's another factor to keep in mind that where he goes, you know, how's Alexi going to play with those players? Right. No, it makes a lot of sense, man. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Billy says, uh, oh, my God, Grant has a card. That's my new white whale. My question is, am I getting paid overtime watching this and watching you throw me under the bus earlier? Um, <laughs> no, Billy, no overtime. But I appreciate you watching. That's for sure. Um, okay. I want to talk a bit about Jersey cards because Jersey cards are something that, you know, when they first came out in 97, 96, I guess it was, um, they were all the rage. They were impossible to hit. And even to this day, those first year, those first couple of years of Jersey cards, they can sell well, you know, well into the high hundreds of dollars per card for the, for the better players. And even the commons are over hundred dollar cards. Nowadays you can get a Jersey card, you know, in whatever series it is, and, you know, you can't, sometimes you can't even sell it. People won't even pay the shipping on it, let's say, if you're selling on eBay. What are, you, what are your thoughts on, you know, the use of jerseys and cards and the, the value proposition that they add to a, to a product? It's a really interesting question because I think back in 1996-97, jersey cards were something like 1 in 2,500 packs when they first started, like with Griffey and Ray Ordonez and Gwyn back from the early baseball stuff. Um, and they were amazing. They blew people's minds. They were they were so historically important. And this industry, one of the hardest things to do 
in my job and my team's job is show me something new. You know, I've been there, done that, seen that. And we can talk. I hope we get a chance to talk about some of the crazy stuff uh, that was new um, that has been kind of uh, in the time I've been at Upper Deck. But back in the day, that was a, a major idea. That was a huge concept. And to me, it kind of led to the rookie auto patches. And that's where its legacy becomes important to this day and remains important. Let's face it, jersey cards, by and large, are what we call filler. They, they fill in the box, the hit that you need in the box in your solicitation. That you've got two hits a box or three hits a box. Um, and to that extent, you've seen we've strongly pulled back on the jersey cards in UD1 and UD2. There was multiple reasons for doing that. A, they were not really wanted. But B... If you take something back and you pull it back, it becomes more wanted. People want what they can't get. And especially in UD1, UD2, we know there's master set builders. So they're going to try and build those game jersey cards. So UD1, UD2 actually does have a home for those actually do kind of well, especially the short printed jerseys. But in many other products, especially hit laden products like an SPX or SP game use, where there's lots of that stuff, we know um, you're kind of filling out, checking off boxes to go through and find the good stuff. Um, and we've been pulling back jersey cards, I think, overall a lot. If you look at the number of jersey cards we produced five years ago versus now, it's a fraction of what it was. And we put a lot more money into that technology. And you've seen brands like Synergy with no jersey cards in it. And brands, um, oh gosh, I, oh, Opeachy Platinum has no jersey cards in it. That's very deliberate. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and we're not, uh, you know, we're not as concerned about releasing products. We have plans for all sorts of cool new products coming up. Um, that don't have jersey cards in them. We're not too worried about it. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, they're, I'm not a fan of them anymore. I like the original ones. I like the first ones. But uh, as far as stuff coming out, I agree. They're filler. I'd rather see a, a cool insert or some acetate type card, a technology type card, I suppose. And before we talk about technology cards, um, I want to just bring up this question from, I think it's TCP. It says, I've heard a huge range in Young Guns print runs from 5,000 to 100,000 per player per year. Any chance, I know the answer is no, any chance we could get a general estimate or ballpark on the print runs. But, you know, maybe it's an opportunity to, to tell us, like, why we don't have an idea of what the print runs are even. Uh, Jeremy, you're correct. The answer is no. Uh, but it is a good question as to why is it important that we always say no. Uh, and it's important on many reasons. Obviously, one of them is uh, the competitive nature of we don't want to reveal all our financials and all that kind of stuff um, on big brands like uh, a UD1 or UD2. But the other thing is, and uh, I've preached this ever since I've kind of started overseeing and mentoring the product development team, is that there is a great value in not knowing everything about a card. There's a value in an element of mystery to a card. Um, the fact that people don't know how many Connor Young Guns and how many Crosby Young Guns uh, are out there actually helps keep its value. I mean, let's face it. Nobody knows how many 52 mantles are out there or how many 75 George Bretts are out there or, or um, many, many other, uh, you know, very important cards uh, that this industry is built upon. And it just doesn't matter. This doesn't that, that, matter. That actually, that actually applies to every card up until probably 1990 with the, as far as I know, the Stanley cup hologram and pro set was the first serially numbered card that I'm aware of. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And with the vintage cards, obviously, stuff like the PSA population reports um, and the BGS website with the, the, the numbers of how many pristine 10s are out there, that's important. That is sort of a print run um, 
how can I say, uh, a secondary version of a print run on vintage cards or that kind of stuff. But going back to the original question, I think one of the most damaging things you could do is release the print run on that. There is a huge value in, in, in the right cards being numbered and the right cards being not numbered. Okay, good. Um, Amit says, Grant, most important question of the night, how did Billy wow you during his Upper Deck interview? We can just kind of take a little a little laugh at that. Thank you for the, for the comedic well, interlude, Amit. But do you have an answer for that? Uh, well, I can't remember him wowing me during the interview, but if I can tell you a story about where Billy wowed me, I think you'll get a chuckle about it. Billy went through a period of time where he would grow his beard and his mustache and his head of hair from reasonable to like crazy mountain man, you know, living off the land with his arrow. And um, he, he did this like he would take a photo of himself every month for like a year. And he put together this montage from January through December of what his face looked, what his head looked like. And it was, and he did this black and white montage and he showed it to me one day. And that truly wowed me. And I'm like, this is one of the most awesome things I've ever seen in my life. It should be a flip book. I'd like to see that. We should get that. Billy, please bring it next time you're a guest on sports cards live. Rich Barone says, uh, Grant legendary cuts hockey set. Please, Rich is a big legendary cuts collector, as you may know. Uh, Stephen wants to know, will there be an exquisite basketball product this year? Well, let's circle back to legendary cuts first, because I know we actually glossed over it uh, the very first time. And I want to talk about why there has not been a legendary cuts um, hockey set. If you go back to all the legendary cuts baseball sets that we did in the year, um, for anybody who collects cut signatures, they'll know there is a fraction of the amount of hockey cut signatures out in the market as compared to baseball. In fact, there's so few that it makes it almost unrealistic to try and build an entire product called legendary cuts hockey. There's just not enough cuts to go around and build that. That would take you, you know, 10 years of, of looking for cuts and buying the cuts to do it. That, that just wouldn't be financially feasible. Now, that doesn't mean are we looking for a, a, that we're not looking for opportunities to add in um, cut signatures in hockey. We want to use them right, like Splendor a couple of years ago had a good array of really nice cut signatures. And certainly we are looking for opportunities to add in at the right amount of time uh, in an amount that won't delay a, a, a pack out um, and that we can present a quality checklist. Um, we are looking for opportunities to add some more cut signatures into hockey. Okay, cool. And exquisite basketball. Um, no, we don't have plans for an exquisite basketball product, but will you see exquisite basketball cards like next week in Goodwin? Yes. <laughs> will they be amazing? Yes. Okay. And will we continue doing some more? Yes. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Thank you for the, uh, cryptic sort of response. I appreciate it. Better than, uh, better than no information at all. Right, everybody. Okay. Um, we have a question here on EPAC, uh, which we didn't touch on in our sort of planning, but um, I'll throw it up there. So can you discuss how big of a percentage EPAC does for the hockey market? Any plans to add a product like SPA or the cup? Uh, I can't touch the percentage of the hockey market thing. You know, that that is something we definitely prefer to keep internal uh, as to how much we sell on EPAC versus in the hobby, uh, you know, the hobby uh, distribution mode. Um, but in regards to, are there any plans to add um, products like SPR or the cup? There are no plans at all. Um, Jason Mosher, my boss and president of the company, has repeatedly publicly stated 
we're not adding SP Authentic and we're not adding the cup to EPAC because we respect, we greatly appreciate and greatly respect the hobby markets. We respect the hobby brick and mortar stores. Um, and we want to try and build a healthy EPAC market where a product like Synergy, by the way, has been red hot and done really well. And built, Tony Siriani, who built Synergy, and I spoke for months internally, uh, and we were both extremely frustrated about how difficult a market Synergy has had with the hobby consumer, um, knowing like, man, I would bet my two front teeth that Synergy is going to sell well in EPAC because it's hit heavy. You'll get a lot of the red glows. And it's the right amount of cards for that consumer. And if you build a good achievement system behind it, it's going to sing. And it's been singing beautifully. Um, and, 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 you know, EPAC has actually saved some products. There was a product, SPX was on, you know, on uh, the verge of being discussions of being cut back in 2015. We had very low hobby, um, uh, you know, quantities. And we're like, let's put it on, on um, EPAC, Ultimate Collection, same thing. The brands you see on, on EPAC, are the brands historically the five years ago when we started EPAC, nobody wanted in hobby. They didn't want Ultimate Collection. They didn't want SPX. They don't want Synergy. And we're okay with that. And I think I'm with Amin. I think Synergy's a great sleeper. I really do. It's got the lowest number of true rookie cards in the industry. Um, and, you know, if we keep that brand around and we can find its footing and, it's, and it can build a legacy, which EPAC allows us to do that, where, yes, there's actually a lot more uh, there's very little synergy in hobby. Try find a physical box of that at some point five years in the future. That may be a smart thing to hold on to. Yeah. Um, that also tells me, yeah, shush. Um, I want to talk about a, a, a historical lesson about some brands that were not popular when they first came out. And, and the one that comes to mind with me is 1996 Top Chrome Basketball. That was the Kobe year, Okay. And think about how massively valuable boxes of 96 Topps Chrome would be right now. If you had them sealed, nobody wanted Topps Chrome back in 96. They couldn't sell it. They, they, Topps couldn't give it away. It was, it was a closeout. And they stuck with it. And look how important Chrome became. So you got to be careful with the cat calls. Of like, ah, it's garbage. Get rid of it. It didn't work in year one or two. It's garbage. You guys don't know what you're doing. Um, you know, there there are other markets. EPAC is its own world. It's its own market. It's so neat to see that you've got this one community that can superfluously trade, buy, sell, and trade cards without even handling them. They trade, trade, trade. They build this community. Uh, and we know, you and I know, this. This the backbone of this collecting is community-based. What we're doing tonight is amazing. I love it. And what we do at shows and, and get together, uh, you know, at the fall expos and everybody – plans to see good friends that they've had for 10 years and going to the card shop and hanging out like uh, for two hours. And you, I know, you know, I lived in Dallas for many years, uh, Nick's baseball card shop. Um, there's some great hockey collectors there. Uh, you'd be surprised how, how strong, um, you know, Benny, uh, Benny Nohans uh, was one of the great Dallas collectors. And there's a bunch of others. They all plan to get together on release day at Nick's and they would rip through like six cases of product live right there. And I even flew in sometimes to meet them and, and talk to them for a couple hours. So it was so neat. So I love these different communities that like EPAC's got its community and, and, and Hobby Skew has its community and, and brands can thrive separately there. Okay. Good stuff. Thank you. Super Striker. <clears throat> Welcome to the show as always. Okay. So we've touched on jersey cards. We've touched on um, autograph cards. I want to talk a bit about what, what I know you guys refer to as technology cards. And to me, that means die cut, die cut cards or ask, 
die cut acetate on cardboard or die cut cardboard on acetate, those types of things. Can you discuss sort of the, what, how you see the value proposition in terms of these technology cards, how they kind of fit into that world of the insert type of card? And, uh, and, and really, you know, is there a favorite of your own? Is there something that you consider to be one of your own favorites? Is there something that you think that, the, that, that besides synergy, because we've talked about that already, that you think collectors might be missing the boat on in terms of where there could be some value down the road? Uh, I, I do for sure. It's a great topic. Um, some of my favorites actually may not be massively important. I just love them. Um, one of my favorite ones I'll, I'll give you is the cup fine silver cards. Oh yeah. I love those cards. Those things were so hard to produce. They're impossibly difficult to get done because you're dealing with minting vendors where you're giving them print runs that are infinitesimally small. And they're like, what? How few? <laughs> you want that it's like we're not gonna give, we're not gonna bother you know you have to it's so difficult to get them made and i thought they were some of the most beautiful cards when we saw them when they the type cards came into our office i'm like i'm taking the day off because i'm just too happy these are so cool um and you know to me a technology card i view them as uh what can you make that doesn't have an autograph on it that people are going to really pursue and, and really want um, and that gives you as a manufacturer more leverage to deliver consistent value, deliver consistent content to the consumer. Um, it also gets away from the bidding wars for autographs. Um, you know, back when you have multiple people, you know, you can get bidding wars or even agents themselves. And you just hold up um, their clients and say, well, you know what? I, I just want this much for them and I'm not going to take any less. And it may not make sense to us. Um, you know, and it, the more technology cards you make, the less um, you have to have those autograph cards. So when you get into stuff, I consider it's not a technology card, but I'll tell you one of the most important ones and for hockey. It's Canvas Young Guns. Okay. Canvas Young Guns is one of the most important cards. Is it a technology card? Not really, but the paper's cool. It's this dimpled canvas paper. It's not a, just a, a standard card, but what it allowed us to do is it gave us a card that people thought, well, that's cool. And when we added Canvas Young Guns, we added them in, I think, 2011, or right around Ryan Nugent Hopkins' rookie year. Um, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to come with a balancing factor to make sure that, well, if you put the number one draft pick, Young Gun, into Series 1, what are you going to do with Series 2? That was always the problem we had. And I, I thought to myself, we got to build another, what I call a set within a set. And what I mean by that is, I, you know, one thing that drives me crazy about canvas cards and canvas young guns is the repeated erroneous reference by collectors to calling them parallels. They are not parallels. They have their entirely own different checklists. They're all new photos. In fact, they were very photo driven because we wanted to me, upper deck, the flagship brand is all about photography. It's always been built on amazing photography and young guns, rookie cards, pretty much in the hockey era. Um, so we wanted to take canvas young guns and we wanted to take photos that were more personal, like uh, pictures of guys playing soccer in, in uh, the mezzanine area, or, you know, in, in uh, the locker room areas before a game, or pictures of uh, players signing autographs for ki kids and that kind of stuff that gave more personality, or just really cool photos of Sharks players emerging for the, from the shark jaws with clouds and stuff like Neat stuff like that. And we wanted to put photos on the back of the cards as well. We wanted to go old school and do two, two unique photos in the front and back. But most importantly, we wanted the Young Guns cards. We wanted another Canvas Young Gun. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, we wanted a Canvas Young Gun. So when we released Nathan McKinnon's Young Gun in Series 1, 
Well, we got his canvas young gun for series two. And then if we hold back, like, I don't know, um, let's say in a year when you have two good rookies, like Eichel, if we hold back Eichel's young gun for series two, you're still going to get a compelling young gun canvas Eichel in series one. So you get the feel for all the players. That was the most important thing. That's a tech card, no autograph, um, pays homage to what the what upper deck brand is all about, great photography and young guns. And it allowed us to deliver the right cards people wanted in both series one and series two. That was one of the most important kind of tech cards we did. The other ones are the clear cut young guns. Sorry. Right. <laughs> no, you go ahead. I was, please continue. I the, got clear -cut that. the acetate young guns, acetate young guns was an idea we really wanted to do for big case hits uh, in, in UD. Um, the clear cuts was one. We really wanted to give the hobby skew uh, an exclusive card of great value and great desire to offset some of the concerns when EPAC was starting. That's when clear cut young guns started. Uh, there was a lot of concerns like, what are you doing for hobby? Why do, why do I, why does EPAC get achievement cards and why do they do that? So we wanted to make sure we always try and we truly, truly try and, and pay respect and, and appreciation for, for the hobby consumer and the brick and mortar stores. So it brings me to the question I was going to ask you a little bit later, even though we are coming up to, we are going on in time here. How do you decide who gets their, their, their young gun in series one versus series two? Well, as I talk about with canvas young guns, it makes it a lot easier decision. We don't feel like we're truly leaving everyone in the lurch, but I think it comes down to, um, you know, I think the general assumption every year is that the number one pick is going to be in series one. You know, I think people would just lose their minds if they, if they weren't. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're then dealing with the second best rookie as, as, as anchoring the Series 2 Young Guns checklist. I don't think that's any great revelation. Now, there is some, some years where you have like an Elias Pettersson where he was not a number one pick, but he was the best rookie. Excuse me. Uh, it's going to drink a sip of water. Yeah. Or you have a Brock Besser. Not a number one pick, but we knew the heat on some of these guys. You kind of knew the heat going into them and how to balance that out. So we pay – I mean, my background as a market analyst for Beckett for 18 years. All I did was look at what things sold for. So it's in our nature. We know we've got – and we track very, very carefully throughout the entire year, uh, and, and we rank them, uh, all the rookies. I can just go from memory uh, on, on my, my, my list of like, okay, you know – Jack Hughes is tied with Quinn Hughes, who, you know, now Shesterkin's moving up. And, uh, you, you know, you, uh, you've got – I could just go down the line with this. Suzuki's just a notch above Doc and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, we, we, we huddle up internally. We have our, our – internally we have a group uh, – we have a team that builds our products. We've got a product manager who builds the skeleton of the product and conceives – um, the configuration, how many cards per pack, how much is the box, how much are the packs, what are the key chase cards, why are people buying this product, what are the three reasons why people are going to buy this product. That's the product manager's responsibility. And the product manager is typically someone who's collected their whole life and now comes to work for the manufacturer and learns all the stuff you need. We also have somebody called a coordinator. Sorry, I'm dying here. I got to drink Go a little ahead. water. And the coordinator. Their job is to really know hockey really, really well. And they build all the checklists. So they are following, and I, I oversee both um, the, both those groups. And we also have a brand manager who basically oversees the business and the finances of it, make sure um, timelines are hit, things are going to be released on time. 
Um, brand uh, is responsible for communicating with the leagues, uh, that kind of stuff. But the coordinator is a, is a central figure, and you'll never, you don't really see coordinators on like you know sports cars live and, and podcasts and stuff. Um, but they are are guys that really know the checklist well. They build the checklist. Um, it is a I, I kind of look I on important checklists. I check off all that stuff. That's kind of goes through me. I'm like the Gordon Ramsay at Hell's Kitchen at the pass, making sure that that plate looks beautiful before it goes out to the restaurant. If it's a critical checklist, like a Young Guns checklist. I, I look it over. Um, and, and the product managers are often called in as well to look at checklists and say, hey, are we good here? Um, so kind of there's a lot of discussions that go on at that time. So that brings me to a similar question, which is um, with the in the cup every year, we have the RPAs out of 249 and then the handful, usually six, they're out of 99. And these come out, you know, a few months after the season is, has ended. And a lot of you know, myself included, a lot of people kind of want to know, like, how do you guys decide who gets a cup RPA out of 99? Who who gets into that exclusive group? And how do guys get in there like a Justin Pogge or a, what was his name? Uh, Louis LeBlanc, I think. Was it Louis LeBlanc or someone? Yeah. I, mean, I don't even know these guys' names and they have cup out of 99. How does that happen? And how do you decide who gets those? And even importantly, when do you make that decision? It, it's a really good question. And the strategy has actually changed in the past couple of years. Um, believe it or not, like in, in prior, a long time ago, we would wait till longer in the year or later in the year to decide who's a cup 99. And it led to some very, very scary situations where we didn't have live autographs in hand as we were approaching the time to pack out the cup. And you can't pack out the cup unless you have live autographs for Connor McDavid's rookie auto patch of 99 or Austin Matthew. You just can't do it. You're going to delay the launch. And that can have massive financial implications. Um, so I wanted to think of a way to avoid that unbelievable nail biting that that goes on if you were printing the cards later in the season and waiting forever. And the more later in the season you go, the more burned out the rookies get for signing. They're on their, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cards. And they're like, oh my gosh, when does this end? And they, they're not going to be as reliable. So... I got to the point where I would rather have, you know, five good rookies and maybe one stinker, but guarantee getting them packed out live and not having any risk because Connor um, signed that card much earlier in the year. And that's what we do now. We probably make those decisions around, I would guess, um, early December for the Cup 99s. Who are the 99s? Um, that doesn't mean we make a decision on all the 249s. We can go a little later on those. Um, so you can capture like a Shishterkin or someone like that or a Matt Murray or a Jake Gensel, someone important who debuts later in the season. Um, you'll capture them. Um, but the, the the 699 guys, we want to make sure we get their cards made, printed, sent to them well in time uh, so we have them back and we capture these important assets. And and does that result in Casey Middlestad becoming a Cup 99 because in December of 2018, whenever he was a big shot, People thought, oh, yeah, he's definitely Buffalo's solution as a uh, second-line center. Huh, not really. Um, you know, but at that point in time, he was. Um, and, you know, it, it, you're definitely going to have a few, uh, a stinker here or there. But I think the benefits of guaranteeing that you're going to be able to pack out Connor and Austin and Pedersen and, and Jack Hughes live as 99s outweighs the occasional Justin Pogge or, or, or Casey Middlestead. 
Yeah. Oh, agreed. Thank you for that very much. Very much. Uh, Rich corrects me. The first upper, the first autograph on Upper Deck was the Brett Hull Heroes card in 91-92. Scott just says, good to know about the paired assets. I agree. That was good. Here's a kind of a random, well, not random, but off-topic question from um, from uh, Amazid. He says, does Upper Deck plan to embrace the Tops Project 2020 concept and integrate art and integrate art and hockey cards or fine art and hockey cards or anything. Does that, does that project inspire you guys, Grant? Do you, do you look at it and say, Hey, that was a good idea. Maybe we could kind of brainstorm off of that and come up with something ourselves. Uh, you know, kudos to tops. I think it's awesome. I think project 2020 is really awesome. I think it's been great for the industry. Uh, it's gotten on major national news that people that don't even think about baseball cards have seen baseball cards on, you know, news, weekly news shows or whatever it may be. Um, so kudos to them for doing it. I, I think Tops is, uh, they're a unique manufacturer, just like we're unique. And, and they are in New York. They're in the middle of the greatest um, marketing hub in the world. Uh, and they have great connections with marketing people. And they, have, they obviously have really good connections with the art world. And I think marketing was a really key factor in this thing taking off. And they're good at that. That's a they played to the core strength of who they are. They're really good at marketing and they live, they're in New York. They're right with the most powerful marketing um, companies in the world. Um, and kudos to them for tapping into this sort of um, the art community. And they got the artists themselves to market the, the, the materials themselves, a lot of social marketing. That's I think they caught lightning in a bottle. And for us to think we're going to go and try and repeat that, that'd be crazy. And, and, and who wants to be so derivative anyways? Yeah. Now to say, I've always thought that that sports and I'm sorry, that art and sports cards has sort of been an oil and water thing. That's it's always been, you know, you always want crisp photography. It's hard. And I honestly, I look at some of the project 2021 stuff, like the Keith Shore stuff. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it looked like uh, Matt Groening, you know, drank a six pack and, and, and made a baseball card. Yeah. Um, it, it, but kudos to them. Hey, Art is art, you know, and people dig it and they're going to collect the, the entire Keith Shore set. And that's awesome. I think it's totally awesome. And the more I look at that goofy looking Ken Griffey Jr. Keith Shore card, the more it kind of grows on me. And that's great. That's the art of art. You know, do I want to try and repeat that? No, a thousand no's. I'm happy for them. And I want to go do the great stuff we want to go do. And have we done art? Sure. I mean, you and I, a couple of days ago, we're talking about portfolio hockey. That was one of a product that I really loved that never caught on. It was released late in the season amongst all these super premium skyscrapers uh, and, and just was overlooked. I thought it had a really cool assets like wire photos and, and had the, the best rookie autograph checklist uh, of any product that whole year. It's one of the few things that had Matt Murray autographs aside Connor autographs. It had every good autograph you could hope for if you're a set builder. That's the set to go build, by the way. Um, if you want a, a perfect um, – chronology or archive of the best sign rookie signers that year. But it also had um, really, really beautiful hand-painted um, sketch cards. They weren't even sketch cards. They were painted um, by uh, Ken Jodry and uh, Antoinette Sufi, uh, two amazing artists that we worked with with Goodwin Champions. And I can we'll get into Goodwin a little later on, I hope. That'll be another three. That's three hours by itself, by the way. Yeah. Um, but um, we actually had some ideas we really wanted to do. We contracted with um, a couple artists that paint some of the most famous goalie um, uh, mask artists like Steve Nash. Um, and we were in contract with them. We wanted the, them to paint sketch cards. It would have been mind blowing to, to have done like Tuka Rask's mask on a sketch card. 
Um, but we weren't allowed to do it because um, there's a lot of sensitivity for licensing with um, the art on, on goalie masks. But there, there have been other ideas that a hockey collector would probably thinking, ooh, that would have been great. Um, but there's some hurdles there. But, you know, maybe we can reapproach it in the future. I really love the the art cards where they were painted right on that were in um, Parker's Champions, I think it was, back in like, two, what year was that? It was late O's or early 2008 or 2011, something like that. Those were awesome cards. And I I had owned a couple dozen of them over the years. They're all numbered to 10. And I think I shipped them all out to a collector in Russia who was collecting these things. Beautiful cards. So I, I And you do that in Goodwin. You see with the, the, the actual um, fine art, uh replica not replicas but you know renditions that you've done another thing you mentioned you said it uh, almost uh, by coincidence there but chronology chronology a little bit like portfolio a more a, a newer a more recent product um how did you feel about that product a really exciting product and, and that was a product that was really born from the opportunity to work with the nhl alumni association it's crazy that some products are actually born from partnerships with uh, with outside partners you've never kind of worked with before. Adam Larry, um, who uh, formerly oversaw the Players Association, uh, was was great, a great partner of our times when he when he was uh, overseeing the Players Association, um, put together and and helped build the Alumni Association and approached us with an opportunity to to work together and um, really uh, give us a group, almost like group licensing for retired athletes and provide uh, the collectors with hundreds of players that they either hadn't seen autographs ever before or hadn't seen autographs on a trading card in 10 or 15 years. And we thought we want to make the biggest checklist ever done for a hockey set. And I think we ended up with 284 signers um, in chronology volume one. And, um, you know, we've got works for chronology volume two coming up in the future. And it's going to be uh, kind of like a bookend set that will will kind of fill out that collection and hopefully be a great experience for, um, you know, set builders and um, team set collectors. I mean, if you're a Red Wings fan, I think there's like 28 signers from the Red Wings right now, and you'll have a bunch of new ones coming up soon. Um, yeah. I love the way that you can collect chronology differently. If you're a team collector, you can collect it. If you're a master collector, you can collect it. If you're just a big hits collector, you can ch chase the diamond autos. Uh, I love the flexibility of it. Uh, uh, Billy worked on that product and he and I, oh my gosh, we banged our heads against the wall for months on end, trying to make the contract fit the, the parameters of the contract fit into a compelling structure of a product. That was really tricky and kudos to Billy for, for working really hard and come up with some great ideas and some great creativity to uh, produce a compelling product. Okay, thank you. Uh, Scott wants to know, can you speak to why exclusive players, for me, Patrick Waugh, don't make it into more sets? Is it the cost of game used and auto? If so, can we please have more products without game used auto parallels? Uh, well, Patrick Waugh is a spokesperson of ours, um, uh, as is you know Wayne Gretzky and um, uh, Bobby Orr. And um, it's, it, Waugh raises a really interesting um, question as to how do you handle spokespersons where you want to um, maintain and respect their value of their cards and not oversaturate the market just by putting them in everything. And also they're retired players. So we've um, worked with, we've deliberately actually worked in the past, I would say 12 to 18 months to flush out certain brands to have no retired players. So, so the fact of where you, when you do hit a retired player, it's special. 
we we definitely felt that it got to a point where if we were putting retired players in everything, like does MVP need retired players? No, not really. Um, there are certain brands that just don't need them. They just don't make sense. Um, and we wanted to make when you got a retired guy that was a little more special. Retired players also add a lot of value to the products. Um, when you look at Patrick Waugh in my ranking system, Patrick Waugh is an A. It, you know, there's not a lot of A's. In, in my world, in the active players, there's three A's, Matthews, Crosby, and, and Connor. And, and Ovechkin's close. He's a B plus and getting closer, right, as he gets closer to that goal scored record. Um, but that's it for active players. There's no more A's. If you go into retired players, all of a sudden you're doubling your amount of A's. You're getting Waugh, Lemieux, or um, Gretzky. Uh, and there's other guys that are close. Um, and so it makes sense if you're putting out a product like the cup or you're putting out a product like um, Ultimate Collection um, that you're going to see retired players like Wah appear in those sets because those sets have the higher premium price points that make sense to deliver these these super premium retired guys. All right. Awesome. couple of uh, just comments on the show tonight. Name says, I love this conversation. So much awesome info and insight into what goes on behind the scenes. And I'll echo that. I mean, this has been extremely informative, Grant. So thank you very much. Uh, Rich Barone says, how about a card made from the boards or glass shattered or, or shattered glass card? I mean, you know, you, we talked the other night, I think it was that we talked about using actual ice from, 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 uh, from, uh, from, 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 from a rink. Well, and then I think I made the comment to you, yeah, but if it ships to Canada and it freezes, it's going to, it's going to expand. It's going to contract. It's going to freeze. It's going to thaw. You're going to have a whole mess on your hands. Have you guys ever looked at using shot? I mean, I could just see it right now. You know, there's the upper deck guys shoveling up the glass as after one of them shatters uh, from, from someone getting knocked into the boards too hard. Have you guys ever thought of glass or boards themselves? Uh, we've absolutely thought of all that stuff. Um, the glass, we, I, I went to um, uh, look at all of the LA Kings glass uh, a couple of years ago uh, and it's all scratched up. It, it, I had a, I was, you know, drove up to LA with a couple other uh, co-workers from Upper Deck and we met with some representatives from the Kings and they showed us, um, and, uh, they were replacing the boards and they were replacing the glass. And we went into the bowels of the Staples Center and uh, walked through the craziest parts of the Staples Center you could imagine. And they walked us up to this mountain of, of glass. Um, and it is thick. I mean, it is, if you take five patch cards and you put them stacked up together. That's how thick the glass is. So from a realistic point of like, can you use glass on a trading card? Good luck with that because you're going to have to find a way to slice it like <laughs> thinner. And it, it, it would just be logistically very difficult to do. Also, the glass is scratched to all hell. So we actually took one piece and we took it back to our offices and we buffed. We had a, a vendor buff it out to make it clean because there was a big question. Do you leave it scratched to scuffed or do you buff it out? Um, you know, we're still looking at a possibility of what we can do with UDA, with Upper Deck Authentic, uh, to make memorabilia because it makes a lot more sense to do something with printing on that glass as a game used element, almost like the way we did the uh, Michael Jordan floor pieces. Can right. you take um, NHL glass and do something? And we're looking into that. For oh. trading cards, I just don't think it's realistic because the glass is so cumbersome. Now, I also want to talk about the ice. Uh, don't worry about the ice freezing if it gets shipped to Canada. Worry about creepy crawly algae growing inside the ice once it's melted two years later because that's what's really going to happen. Um, and we've looked into it. Credentials, actually, we wanted to do um, cards like that with pockets of real ice, and we had to drop it out of the product 
um, because we couldn't get it past legal because they thought, well, somebody could crack it open and drink it and die from some sort of algae or who knows what. Um, and it just, we, we just couldn't get it figured out. You have to put chemicals in there so it doesn't grow creepy crawlies in there, all sorts of nutty stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So no ice. I'm, I'm good with that. We don't need ice, but I like the glass idea, especially sort of the way you guys did the floorboards for uh, those oversized Jordan cards. Those are pretty cool. Anthony Cremona, uh, working at Universal, who's one of Canada's bigger, uh, distributors of hockey cards says, Jeremy, thank you very much for the great content. Uh, Anthony, you're welcome. Thank you for viewing. Grant, on behalf of Universal, I can say the product this year have been fantastic. We hope the remainder of the 1920 product lines finish strong. I'm sure you do too, and we all do. So thank you for that comment. Anthony, Costa says, lots of Upper Deck Easter egg cards in products like those Phantom, those Fanimation cards. Yeah, I love those Fanimation cards. Those are very cool. They are a, sort of somewhat of a throwback to like an early 90s card, actually, that looked like a like kids drew them back then. Um, Billy says, do you, do you have to do a specific deal with David Ayers to feature him in your products? Or was that also part of the deal he signed for his historic game? That was, that required a separate, um, deal with him. We had to go get an image rights deal with David, um, and also get allowance from the players association and NHL properties to, to make cards for him. Okay. Uh, Costa throws out a couple more 99s that turned out to be duds, uh, Tulusti, uh, Tolvanen, I think he's a more recent one, but does this, when, when we hear these names, Grant, and you use the five of six kind of analogy earlier, um, do these guys kind of stick out to you as the guys you might've thought weren't going to be, uh, you know, eventually deemed worthy of a, of a cup out of 99 RPA? You mean when we were making our, our choice of six was the, was the sixth guy we picked the one we're like, I don't feel too great about him. Yeah, like could that have been Tolvanen or I mean Tolusti's I think before your time at Upper Deck he's from 0708 but but a Tolvanen who's more recent were you kind of like kind of I hope he's going to be great but you know he might be the guy that isn't. I uh, you know I I didn't feel too bad about Tolvanen. Tolvanen had a lot of hype on him when he was coming out of Yokerit and was supposed to be really going to fit into Nashville's plans. Um I didn't feel too bad about him but keep in mind a dud, even Louis LeBlanc. Louis LeBlanc's got to be one of the all-time duds, right? But a dud is a dud um, later on. Louis LeBlanc really wasn't a dud when you were opening Cup back in 2014. He was probably a $800 card or a $600 card or something. He was good. And you may have had a 249 rookie um, that was no big deal like um, – oh, gosh, I'm sure there's plenty of 249 rookies that were, you know – $25 to $40 that now have turned into superstars that are selling for $800 now um, that flip-flop. So if you're breaking 2014 cup now and you hit a Louis LeBlanc 99 today, yes, it's a dud. But conversely, you might've gotten like a, a Pasternak out of 249 that could have been way better. That was a dud back then. So things flip-flop uh, yeah. things have a way of balancing out. And a lot of the time, even the, the, the middle stads and the Tolvanens at the time of breaking the first four weeks of the product, the first eight weeks of the product, they're really not duds. They still have that sort of hope. And in, in, inevitably somebody out of the 249 group will come up into prominence and sell for 500 bucks. Yeah. It happens all the time. No doubt about it. Uh, will David Ayers have a rookie card in the cup this coming year? Uh, good question. No, uh, we don't have plan for Ayers uh, cup rookies. We did. The only cards we did uh, were in SBA. Okay. Ziggy wants to know any more LeBron James and Michael Jordan dual autographs coming. How challenging is it to get both to do an on-card autograph? And 
Like who signs first? Um, that's a tough one. Yeah, I, we don't have any plans for dual autos of, of Michael and LeBron right now. Um, you know, who would sign first? I would assume LeBron would sign first because Michael Jordan's the GOAT, and that's that. <laughs> Fair. Hey, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that for sure. Richie says, Chronology is a great product. Al G says, regarding art cards, I've got a 1415 exquisite collection, art of the game, signatures, auto, Jerome McGinley, one of three with an oil painting on three panels. Is in 2015, 16, the cup, any chance of making more cards like that? I love that card. I love that card. It's a three panel. It's a triptych and it's painted super wide by Ken Jodry. I can picture it in my mind. Those are some of the coolest booklet cards we did. I mean, the cup has the finances behind it to allow us to pull out our chemistry sets and our beakers and, and make some weird cards that are very expensive to make. That triple panel card with a low print run of three, I can't even begin to explain how expensive just the production of that card was. And it's, it's cool that a super premium product like the cup allows us to make cards like that and make cards like the triple panel uh, shield cards we did, I think in 2015 and, and the fine silver cards we talked about. Those are extremely expensive cards that allow us to stretch the boundaries and make some really memorable, cool stuff that the true aficionado, the, the super collector um, can pine for, you know, they're, financially they make no sense for us that that was they're incredibly expensive to make but you got to continue pushing the boundaries you got to continue and try and wow the super collector to give them something aspirational to pursue yeah no for sure for sure okay um i'm i'm seeing a bunch of more comments come through questions guys so thank you everyone for all those and thank you for everyone who's thanking grant for asking your questions i think that's very nice to see uh, i do want to move on to something a little bit a uh, little bit different so um, actually, before we do that, Grant, I want to give you an opportunity because let's face it, today Stature came out and Stature is, a, a, I mean, I only saw the cards for the first time today. I was watching Stefan Perot's uh, group break on Facebook and these cards, they, they look beautiful. Take a minute and just tell people about, I'll let you promote the product a little bit, that one and also Goodwin. I know you're very excited about Goodwin Champions. Talk a bit about those two sets. Yeah. Um, you know, Stature, I really got to give props to JT Strasnick. That Stature was his idea, his brainchild. I mean, I mean, we basically presented to JT saying, hey, we want to we want to give a super premium feeling product that doesn't have a super premium price point. Um, and I, I think he just nailed it on the head. And JT, what he's really good at is he is he puts so much passion into his products. So much love. He did ingrained as well. And you can see the creativity in those products. JT didn't want to just give you a card that you've seen before. And if you're holding a stature, if you're fortunate enough today to be holding a stature card in your hand, the finish on that card is unlike any other card we make. Um, it's like a styrene, which is a gobbledygook word, whatever styrene means to people. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a unique sort of surfaced card, and it's got this beautiful sheen to it. And it, what I love about it is that it doesn't feel and look like any other card we make in the calendar. And the way I look at things as um, the uh, director of product development is I try and look at, at our calendar as a whole and make sure, do our brands have distinction? Uh, are, we're not just mailing it in and doing like one product that feels exactly like the next product. I, we really take pride in doing our best effort to try and present to the collector a cadence in the calendar and the release, the releases where each brand can stand on its own, and I think Stature really does. And I hope people have the chance to experience the product and, and buy some packs and buy some cards and join some group breaks um, and get some of those cards in hand 
um, because I'm really excited. When I broke an inner of it today, I broke uh, um, it's a 12 box inner, and it was fun. It was a lot. I mean, I've done this my whole life, so you could argue that I may be falling uh, as one of the jaded folks that's kind of seen it all and all that kind of stuff. But I had a heck of a lot of fun um, breaking stature today because the cards are just drop dead gorgeous. I looked at them like, man, I am proud of us as a company for making these. I am proud of this. And, and, and kudos to JT for really being the guy uh, behind pushing people to, you know, get his vision into, um, into a reality. Before you go on to Goodwin, you mentioned JT. You've mentioned um, Tony and Billy's well known. These guys, you know, when, when we go, when we are able to all meet up at the expo again or any card show, are these guys available to collectors? Like, you know, can they go up to these guys at the upper deck booth and say, Hey, are you the guy that made stature? And, you know, I really, I really love that product or I would like to see this next time. Or have you ever thought of that? Like, it's nice having this, this platform here for people to come on sports cards live and ask my guests the questions, but can these people also go up to these guys at the card show and, you know, where upper deck is set up and you've got your representation there and kind of ask some of these same questions and, and bounce ideas off them. And like, are, are your, are your product managers open to this sort of discussion with collectors at card shows? A hundred percent. Yes. In fact, we view it in one of the most important things for uh, us as a company in sending our product managers to work the booth and walk the floors at the expo and, uh, and all, uh, the national and, uh, and the shows, the bigger shows around is the ability to interact with the collectors and uh, the dealers that are there and the distributors. That's part of it. They've got to, and, and they love it. JT loves it. And Billy loves it. And Tony loves it. They're all lifelong collectors. They are you guys. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like a true joy to get to talk you know the, about the products that they they that are part of them. They're so passionate about, and we feel as a company, it's important that we, you know, finance a travel budget in in normal times when we can actually travel um, to have not just our marketing staff there, but have the product guys there. That we we allow access to to have those conversations. So please, you know, God willing, we we can get to a, an expo, the next expo we get to, or the next national we get to, or the next big show we get to. Um, please come up to the booth and ask, hey, is are there anyone in the product development team here? I'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you. And guys, like, like listen to that. Come to the come to the expo. Come to the go to the national. If you're more, you know, if you're more in the States and if it's easier for you to get there. But if you're up in Canada, you're close, or you want to just come to the expo in Toronto, come to the show, go to the upper deck booth, meet these people. And like 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 Grant just said, you know, they are they're they're collectors too and they're very approachable and like billy comes to the dinner that we have the thursday before expo just about every year and hangs out with us for a couple hours and he's talking hockey cards he loves it so i reckon you know i really want to encourage everybody to come join us at these shows meet everybody if you're not someone who's already coming come to the shows meet the people in the hobby we spoke about it earlier one of the best parts about this hobby is community we're all even though we have our differences and we collect different things we're all very like-minded um, I just want to bring up this comment because I, I, I flubbed up your name earlier, Abdul and Julian, and I, it's hard for me to remember who's who when you're trying to remember real names and screen names and then names on message boards and everywhere else. So thank you for joining nonetheless. Um, we, have a, we have a question, um, actually Zach Danner's question. I don't really know what he's getting at here, but it goes back to your days at Beckett. And we're kind of coming to the end of, of the things that we were going to chat about, although I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about Goodwin still, and I want to hear more about that. 
But before we do that, let's just touch on this. He said, and I, let's see if you can make sense of this better than I can, Grant. Can you expand a little on your player groupings you mentioned for Beckett? What sort of things were considered and how were they weighted? Were the groupings the same across all brands and sets? Does that, do you know what he's getting at? Yeah, I, I know what he's getting at. Um, I referenced that we kind of rank players by like an A through F grade. So whether um, Sidney Crosby, who would be an A, uh, had a card in the cup versus uh, a card in SPX, doesn't matter. He's still an A in both checklists. So that remains stable. And the rankings really are a little more important for the rookie classes each year. That you want to make sure you're very carefully tracking a player like Igor Shesterkin uh, as you see him ascend up into being more important. Um, and what we do is we track them and, and I, I keep very close tabs on ranking them. And that helps with when we pack out a product, we are, uh, we go to great lengths to make sure we're trying to balance the value in every box as best as possible to make sure that you get, uh, like an A rank rookie and a B rank rookie and a C rank rookie in each of the cases. Um, and we can kind of balance it out. So, um, we have very careful collation documents um, that we deliver to our vendors, our, our packout, um, our packout vendors, um, with very explicit, very very explicit, um, like this player goes exactly here because he's ranked like this, um, and, and that's how we kind of do it. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. There's another question about um, expired redemptions. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll throw it up there. See if you if you can uh, speak to it, or at least explain kind of the the rationale behind what happens when it, when a redemption expires. He says, "I have a question regarding. I was chasing Opeachy Platinum McDavid autos. I pulled an expired Artemi Panarin. What do I do with it uh, when I pay two hundred dollars for a box and I have an expired auto? Can you speak to like you know why do they expire? And uh, and I know you guys have done as Scott points out here the redemption raffle to sort of alleviate that." Um, any, any comments on that, Grant? A couple things, yeah. Um, you know, Chris Carlin is sort of the maestro of the redemption raffle, so we are trying to provide some sort of an outlook for that expired redemption. Now, keep in mind, this may be a little harsh to say, but that $200 box, buyer beware. If you're buying it, that sounds like you're buying it now, today, uh, not back in 2015 when it was more like a $100 box uh, and, the, and the redemption was live. But you kind of knew if you're buying a box today with expired redemptions, buyer beware. Those are expired redemptions. What you're really paying that $200 for is a chance to hit a Connor, not to get an expired Artemi Panarin. You just happen to hit an expired Artemi Panarin, which, yes, that's frustrating. And uh, I'm sorry that you got that. But to me, it's always like if you're buying vintage wax, buyer beware. If there's expired redemptions in there, you kind of need to be aware of who they were. Um, and how that equates to the, the buying decision that you want to make and the value equation. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I skipped your previous comment. You're sad. Yeah, Jeff, I, unfortunately, I just can't get to them all. There's lots and, uh, sometimes I miss them completely. So my apologies, sincere apologies for that. Uh, Costa says, I have a question about those energy insert cards in UD1. When I first saw them, they reminded me of Pokemon cards. Costa, that's not a question, but, uh, thank you for the comment. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, Grant. So tell us about Goodwin. I, I want to hear about this because I think Goodwin is super cool because it kind of just breaks all the boundaries of what a what a what a what a, a sports card is because there's a lot of non-sport content in that, which I I really personally like. Let's yeah, hear about it. I know you're very proud of it, so uh, let's hear about it. Yeah, and, and to me, it's like for somebody who's built trading cards for 12 years now. It's the most fun sandbox to play in. 
because it has no limitations. And I love hockey. I, I have great appreciation for hockey. But if you're limited to the confines of this is your sport, this is what you're working on, then you're going to have limitations for the content. It has to be hockey focused. If you go to Goodwin, it could be anything focused. And then you just get into the fact that you're just dealing with trading cards at that point. And as I alluded to all the way back in 1977, when I was a little kid, I collected Star Wars cards as passionately as I collected Topps baseball cards. I've always been a bit of a unicorn that I love entertainment cards as much as I love sports cards. I just love all cards. I love them all. And um, with Goodwin, I, you know, like I had stated, I came to my job interview with a map of like, here's four pages of notes on a product I want to call Goodwin Champions. I think the 1888 set was one of the most important visually beautiful sets ever done. I wanted to be painted and I want to make bug cards with butterflies and all this crazy stuff. And we did Goodwin painted for the first many, many years. I worked on Goodwin. Uh, that was my passion project. I probably drove people totally crazy for five years from the year 2008 through like 2013 or 14 on Goodwin because I, I every picture had to be perfect. The first year I did um, Goodwin, the Jordan card is him sailing through the air in the background of clouds because I wanted Air Jordan. Um, and I wanted very specific images uh, for very – I wanted um, LeBron's autograph to be from the decision, from that very famous um, – you know, when he made that decision, he was wearing that, like, purple checkered shirt. I wanted – the painting had to be from the decision because we obviously had limitations for licensing where I wanted to make emotionally resonant imagery of our athletes that, that, um, that spoke to elements of their career that could work around – the fact that we couldn't picture him in a Cavaliers uniform, but I still wanted to make the best card possible. So I was just running around driving photo crazy. Like it's gotta be this photo and it's gotta be painted perfectly. And God bless everyone at upper deck for dealing with me. The, the lunatic perfectionist running around trying to make good one as good as it could be. Um, and working on just crazy stuff. Like we did stuff like um, we took the elemental chart, like cobalt and silver, you know, this crazy stuff. We almost set fire to the building trying to put, I, I don't even remember what it was, some weird element we bought and we tried to trap it into a clear disc of, of like, um, almost like a clear disc of acetate glue. And it created a chemical reaction that started like billowing smoke everywhere. And it was just nuts. The stuff we were doing to try and make cards that nobody had ever done, but we wanted to take the elemental table and make relic cards out of it. We wanted to take meteorites and make relic cards and, and, uh, you know, that that stuff has been so fun and, and NASA space relics and uh, Napoleon's chair and Abraham Lincoln's table were cards and they sold for thousands of dollars. They, they redefined the limits of what could be a card. We, we had a tattered old Civil War flag that really was controversial. But, oh, my gosh, if you had seen the condition of that flag, you would have thought, yeah, it's OK to cut that up and kind of make it live again and be appreciated again. Um but we wanted to stretch the boundaries for what could be trading cards. And Goodwin was the perfect platform to do it. Yeah. It also, because we weren't paying uh, licensing royalties to a league, it freed us up to do all these crazy things and pay on the money. You're like, let's go buy. You don't even want to know how much money we spent on meteorites or just things like that. And then we could still do crazy things like let's make patches of animals. I think it'll be awesome because people like animals. And we, we heard a lot of feedback, like, wouldn't it be great if you could get, we know your core collector is uh, a man, you know, a, a male from the ages of 25 to 60. But how can we get that male, that male collector, significant other, to say, "Well, I'm so sick and tired of you spending all your money on these cards," and instead they could say, "Well, that's a really cool. I love that cute picture of that 
baby seal animal patch. I'll collect that with you, darling. And that guy's like, great. I have a free license to go buy four cases of Goodwin. And, and my wife or my girlfriend thinks this is fun. I'm getting to enjoy my hobby with my daughter or my son or my wife. Um, we heard a lot of that uh, when we did the Animal Kingdom patches. And we knew we wanted to very strategically short print them. And uh, a set that a lot of our hockey collectors are, are on tonight um, was directly born from Animal Kingdom patches. And good one was the Opeachy Team logo patches from 2013-14 and onward, right? Those were, And we knew they were going to be a big hit. That was when I built. I came up with a list in Excel sheet of like – 1,030 different team logos from 1921 to present. And we had to get them all vetted by the league. Some of them were allowed to be used. Some weren't. We couldn't do the WHL, but we could do other defunct teams. And uh, we couldn't do certain teams' third logos, but others we could. And we knew that we thought the hockey collector is going to love this. What a great set to collect. And it worked. I mean, some of those things sold for 600 bucks out of Opeachy. With yeah. no autographs. That was now that's not technology, but I consider that under the umbrella of a technology card is a high-end chase card that doesn't have an autograph on it. Yeah. Um, and that was born from Goodwin doing weird stuff in Goodwin. It can actually benefit other brands. Um, other stuff we did with uh, I gotta give some kudos to Rob Ford. I, I'd mentioned coordinators before in the past. They build the checklist, but and Brian Schilling. Uh, and, and Tony Siriani now have taken the mantle from what Rob Ford and I did back in the day uh, from Goodwin from like 2009 through 2015, Rob Ford and, uh, and I built Goodwin every year, but Rob Ford was the one that did all the heavy lifting, all the research for um, trying to figure out who's going to sign autographs. That's on the coordinator. All the research for like, where are you going to buy the bugs? That's on the coordinator. Where are you going to buy the meteorites? It's all on the coordinator and they do so much. And I'm just the guy going, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? You know, that's me. I did the easy stuff. Um, but Rob did all the hard stuff, and he gets a ton of credit for building the backbone of that brand that Brian and um, Tony have taken over. And those guys put so much sweat equity and so much love into that brand every year. And I think they've really, um, if you ask, I mean, hopefully in the future you got Tony on the show, um, and he can tell you some stories about his experiences with growing that brand. Uh, you know, into the map relics and, and the coin relics and all the stuff that defines the more modern era of Goodwin. Um, and, but kudos to, to the work that Brian and Tony put into it. it it's a lot of love uh, and it creates a brand that's so much fun. Um, moving to this year's Goodwin, it's coming out next week. Okay. So you'll see it on, on online breaks and at hobby shops on July 22nd. Um, it's a product that it takes almost two years to do that. Like we start building um, this year's product started two years ago and it's just a mad hustle and it's got such amazing content. And I do want to talk about some of this stuff because I think there's some names in there for the designers that people may not realize of how cool they are. And there's some cards in there that have some really interesting stories and they may not realize how cool they are. So the first name I want to talk about is Jalen Green. I don't know how many people have heard about Jalen Green. But I know, Jeremy, you've been into basketball cards um, lately, and a lot of collectors are kind of, you know, um, looking at basketball cards. Well, this year's draft, uh, NBA draft, uh, I think a lot of the experts and the scouts and the people that make their living rating draft classes would rate this year's coming draft class as a down draft. You know, in fact, it's nobody even knows who's going to go first overall. Is it Anthony Edwards? Is it uh, LaMelo Ball? who's it going to be? It could be any one of nine players. And that speaks to the fact that there's not that one standout player who's going to be this generational superstar. Now, we may have some stars in this draft. Probably will. 
but nobody knows who they are. They could be drafted 15th for all we know. Right. But next year is going to be a really strong draft. And that's held up by two guys. First one is Jalen Green, and the next one is Cade Cunningham. Um, and Jalen Green, if you want a description for who Jalen Green is, Kobe Bryant Light is the description that I've heard scouts talk about Jalen Green. Now, that's a hell of a comparison. That's the guy you want compared. You know, you don't want your back to the basket, you know, Sven Nader kind of guy. You want the high flyers, the guys that you get to jumping out of your seat. That's why basketball is so electric is that they have some of the most electrifying performers in all of sport. And Jalen Green brings it big time. Uh, he's, he's slated to go first or second overall in next year's draft. Okay. And we're so excited to be the very first company to bring his trading cards to market. He's going to have his first ever hard signed autographs in Goodwin Champions, um, including inscribed cards. His nickname is Money. Um, he's inscribed those cards. Um, so that's the first signer that I don't think people realize how neat that's going to be. Um, you, obviously, we have Jason Dominguez. We released an image gallery on our Facebook page. I hope uh, a lot of our users have had a chance to go to the Upper Deck Facebook page and look at the Goodwin Champions image gallery that Tony put together. Uh, there are some mind-bendingly uh, insane uh, Jason Dominguez cards. His nickname is The Martian. I'm just telling uh, Ziggy that, yes, Jalen Green's auto will be in this year's Goodwin that comes out next week. Sorry to distract you. Yeah, that is correct. His first ever autograph cards are in this year's Goodwin. Um, Jason Dominguez has Signature Kicks cards. Signature Kicks is another amazing card we debuted in Goodwin. That was like we wanted to take basketball shoes, and we were working on the sneakerhead, uh, just the sneaker collectors. We didn't even care if they were game used. I didn't care. I just wanted to take, like, you know, Air Jordan cards, Air, Air Jordan shoes, not game used, and make Michael Jordan cards using the classic Air Jordans and Penny Hardaway's with the, the Galaxy cards, he ha uh, shoes he had, and make amazing cards because I'm a big believer. Make beautiful visual cards, and people will collect them. You don't have to have autographs, but it, uh, and they don't even have to be game used. They can just be beautiful, and they'll still be they will be appreciated. I yes. preached it for years, and I still believe it. And Signature Kicks does not have game use, but it has really cool collectible shoes. Thematically, it makes sense. Dominguez has the cleats in there. They're really, really cool. There's some unbelievable LeBron James signature kicks this year. Go check out the gallery. Your jaw will be on the floor. I think I think I got I got to get you to talk to Chris Carlin, and maybe he's watching right now. Have him send me a box of the Goodwin when it comes out, and we'll open it on on a show, and we'll give away the hits to to the viewers on the show. They can actually we can have a sort of a follow up episode. Now you gotta have Tony. You gotta have Tony on that one. All right, done. We'll do it. We'll do it. Send me a box. I'll open it on camera and we'll, and I'll ship the cards out to some of the viewers here. If you guys are willing to do something like that. Um, anything else about this year's? Yeah, there is a couple others. Um, Danny Trejo. I love the fact we got him to sign cards, but not only did we get him to sign cards, he's holding this huge machete and he, he inscribed machete on there. It's the perfect Danny Trejo card. It's so great. You know, we got Megan Rapino. Megan Rapino is a, a, a fantastically important athlete in today's times. Um, we got her to sign. We got the first ever autographs of Bianca Andreescu. Yeah. Um, she's a countryman of yours, Jeremy. Yeah. So yeah. hey, all the Canadian collectors. Um, there is, um, we've got, who else? We got Steven Root from Office Space to sign about it, about the stapler and just some really funny ones. And, and that really lays testament to all the work that Brian Schilling does. He researches so much and works so hard to get um, compelling names 
Uh, we have Joe Burrow in there. The first overall uh, pick in the NFL is in there with hard sign cards. So we have we have a superstar in baseball. We have Jason Dominguez. We have a superstar in football with Joe Burrow. We have a superstar in basketball with Jalen Green. I mean, that's pretty good. We deliberately don't put hockey content in there, modern hockey content in there, as to we don't feel it's it's needed in there. It's kind of steps on the toes of what we do with our NHL license. Right. Um, and we've also got um, there's some oh the, the other stuff we have I think. We're at like a dozen basketball signers for, for this year's draft. We have um, Cole Anthony, Tyrese Maxey, Denny Avdia. Denny Avdia has been one of these guys that could go as high as third overall. Um, he's out of the Israeli leagues. Um, he's like a Swiss army knife of a forward that can read it with a great handle. He's been compared to Luka Doncic, like not as good as Luka. Luka's my favorite player, by the way. I lived okay. in Dallas for many years, so I bleed Maverick Blue. Um, love me some Dirk and love me some Luka. Um, but he's been compared to kind of Luca's game, where he can he can stick threes, but he's got a great handle. He can rebound. He's six nine or six ten. Uh, he's nimble and fast. So he we got him. Uh, his, you'll, that's his first ever autograph cards. You'll find first ever autograph cards for Cole Anthony's a sleeper in the draft. I've seen him as high as five in the mock drafts. Tyrese Maxey um, didn't play as well as uh, people expected in his one year at Kentucky, but his skill set is the kind of skill set you want. The electric kind of John Morant kind of guy. Um, and we, we got when we were a dozen deep on this year's basketball players in Goodwin, we realized we know people want some basketball in Goodwin. Um, we sell a lot of Goodwin in Asia. Uh, they love Goodwin in Asia. They love it. Um, and um, we know we got to deliver some basketball there. Okay, man. That, 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 you got me excited for Goodwin. I've always liked the product. And uh, I've been like a one box a year kind of guy, kind of breaker. But I just think it's so neat, the stuff you, you find in there, and you don't really know until you open it what you're going to get. So a, a very cool product. Um, I want to bring up uh, Ziggy's comment here. He says, I wish you guys made ba basketball and football cards. Do you, do you wish exclusive licenses didn't exist? I realize you have a few, but as a collector, I'd like an open market, and UD is amazing. And he, uh, just to, to the, his question about do you wish they didn't exist? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd love the opportunity to, have, you know, the old days where if we had all four licenses, that'd be amazing. That'd be so fun to try and do. I, I love basketball and I love baseball. I love football. I love hockey. I love them all. So sure. I'd love for us to uh, take a, the opportunity to deliver some of the brands that uh, list, your listeners on the show uh, enjoy from Upper Deck uh, alongside with the brands that they enjoy from Tops and, and the, the brands they enjoy from Panini. That's all great. You know, when the market is healthy, everyone benefits. And, you know, but it's just not like that anymore. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits for the licensors themselves in regards to if you have one partner in trading cards, it makes it so much more streamlined for approvals and for just a partnership itself that I think they, they see a lot of benefits, in, uh, you know, in, in having exclusives. Yeah. I, when I had Brian Price on the show a couple months ago now, he mentioned that that was kind of the reason for it it's not it's not really because you guys are all competing against each other it's because the licensors prefer it this way they just decided one partner and we're done so i think for the collectors out there who really dislike that and want to see more competition in the market you got to take up your your case with uh with the licensors with the leagues more so than with the card companies um great question here from billy have you explored a flawless level hockey product in the hockey market or is the cup that product in your mind what do the breakers and distributors think well um that's an interesting one we've always held the cup in such high regard that um that we've always wanted that to be our highest srp product 
Um, and I know, like I talked about, every three years things change. And the cup has been our highest SRP product for many, many years, since 2005. Um, we don't really have any plans to change that. Um, I mean, we did a product like Splendor. We're on a card-for-card -card basis. The individual cards of Splendor are more expensive than the individual cards of the cup. But on a sealed unit, the cup is still the most expensive. And we we want to respect that. And we, we put a great deal of respect into the support that um, collectors have put into the cup for the past 10 years. We know there's cup super collectors that have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their collections of cup cards over the year. Uh, so you got to take it into um, great consideration uh, as to how you add in new brands into uh, your lineup. That's not to say we may never do that. And it's interesting when you look at Flawless, well, Flawless is actually probably way less anticipated than National Treasures, but it's more expensive. That's not to say there's anything wrong with Flawless, but just because it's the most expensive doesn't mean it's the most um, in demand. Fair comment. Okay, thank you. All right, man, listen, we're at two hours and 16 minutes. I like to try and keep it as close to two hours as I can. Um, I think, you know, we. I'm looking at my notes right now. Uh, there's a couple of things we didn't maybe get to, like, you know, and maybe I'll let you just touch on it briefly. Um, you know, any, we know how hot the basketball market is. It, it's unbelievable. Any sort of strategies that you guys are thinking of, or, or are you guys even thinking about, you know, converting some of these basketball collectors over to hockey? And I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Fleer that I think Fleer is kind of maybe the pathway to doing that because that's what they love. And there's so much money in the basketball hobby. And let's face it, you're a business. You need to generate revenue to have profit, to get paid and all that. What, like... Are you are you guys contemplating this? Do you look at what's going on in, ba in the basketball market? And do you think, wow, if we could convert some of those collectors, we could maybe do better as a company? And and if so, do you have any sort of strategies for that? And again, I will say, I do think that FLIR is maybe one of the pathways into that. But I'll let you, instead of me answering the question, I'll let you take a stab at it. Sure. Um, it's a really good question because it begs that, are we trying to do the best products we can well, let me, let me put it this way. When certain cards experience giant spikes in value in basketball, like in Prism, you know, when you look from 2012 Prism forward, when Prism was being made in 2012 and 2013 and 2014, was that being made with the thought that like eight years from now, these cards are going to be amazing? You know, no, of course not. The secondary market is its own thing. They'll find the value in products. They'll look at our, I strongly believe they'll look at our portfolio and they'll go, yeah, Opeachy Platinum. I want the emeralds. I want the size. I think the size mix look great. I'm going to pump those up for Crosby or Ovechkin. They'll find what they want to find. I think, I think we produce enough shiny looking cards and all that kind of stuff. That's not to say that are, are we going to think, Oh my gosh, let's make as many Chrome products as possible because, because we know basketball collectors love Chrome. No, we really want to serve the hockey market. We want to serve the hockey market and, and make great hockey cards, and we want to make the most beautiful cards we can. Like, we just released Stature. I think it's beautiful. Did we do that to try and bring in the basketball collector? No, but it looks beautiful. It looks like a card a basketball collector may like. If that had a, if that was made with a basketball license, would that sell in today's market? Probably. Probably looks like the card they would want. Yeah. We didn't do that because of that. We just wanted to make a really beautiful card. I think JT really had his had some great thoughts on, on some technologies and some printing substrates and the artful uh, delivery of it and the parallels on, and the configurations. And we wanted to make a great product. 
I really think that the the market, the buyers in the secondary market, they're their own beast. They're making their own decisions and they're going to find what they want to find. Okay. Okay. I mean, I somewhat, I hear what you're saying and I think I, you know, I see what I hear what you're saying, especially because you, you mentioned Opeachy Platinum, which has some of the some amazing parallels. And I, I, you mentioned seismic. I love the gold seismics. They're the ones out of 50. I believe. Yeah, they're out of 50. And the Emerald Surges out of 10 are awesome too. Like I love these cars. I can actually sit there and look at one in the light like for 20 minutes, just seeing the different angles and the way the light reflects off it. I think they're very cool. And I think they would be good entry points for some basketball collectors that might want to start dabbling in hockey. All that said... I do, th- I do think that there is an opportunity to bring in more of these collectors. And, and I've, like I said, I see it all the time, seeing it a lot now. A lot of basketball collectors are reaching out to me directly on various social media platforms saying, hey, I saw your show and, you know, I'm thinking about, I want to maybe get, you got, I'm intrigued. I want to I get into hockey a little bit. What, what should I buy? You know, what, 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 what would I like? What, what, what's out there and who are the players? And so, you know, I, I, I write back to just about everybody I can and I, I give them some of my thoughts and, um, and I do pretty much point them to like the Opeachy Platinums and uh, because I'm familiar with it and I think it's a great product, but I do think there might be an opportunity there to help grow, to grow the hockey hobby even more with some, if we can get more basketball collectors in because basketball and, and, and hockey are more similar to each other than baseball is to either of them or football to either of them because they're fast action. The only, the big difference is the scoring. You know, you want one year you got a 3-1 game, the other one you got a 103 to 101 game, right? So that's a lot different, but what it does raise and I heard this from a, a, a prominent basketball collector uh, who said to me that, you know, what's interesting is that one goal in hockey can make so much of a difference that that you that the sport is that much more exciting because of it whereby in basketball the score doesn't really matter until the last few minutes of the game, right? Like that's where you have to watch. So I don't know how related that all is, but I do think there's opportunity there to bring in more basketball collectors. And I'll say it again, probably for the 10th time tonight. I think, I think a FLIR product would be the way to do that. But if it's not in your strategy right now, Hey, no problem. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't work. I don't work in upper deck. I'm just a collector. Those elements, I don't mean to say that we are entirely ignoring that. We're like, oh, we have no interest in trying to set up a platform for attractive cards for new users. Um, and we appreciate the people who have been collecting hockey cards for 10 years and, and the people that have been collecting hockey cards for 10 days. Um, and, and sure, yes, we realize we, I know exactly what basketball card collectors like. Uh, they, all the 90s inserts, all the new chrome parallels, all that kind of stuff. That's, you, you know, and yes, are we, that doesn't escape us entirely, you know. Do we have some brands coming out that I can't really talk about yet that are working that may check off some of those boxes? Maybe. Um, but I also think that there are that, like I stated earlier, yes, we are creating some new stuff that could check some of those boxes. But I do think the secondary market, those buyers themselves, will look at the landscape of what's out there and find stuff to invest in and, and that the, the, the they like. And right now, what a lot of them are going towards are the FLIR showcase and the FLIR retro inserts. Because I I had a guy message me on Instagram yesterday asking me, sending me a picture of of a Wayne Gretzky PMG Red from 2012 retro that was on eBay for like $600 saying, should I buy this? And I mean, I I, I don't want to make your buying decisions for you, but I thought it might have been a little bit expensive for the red version, but 
Seems a bit beautiful card. And that's what they're going for is what they know. And they know those 90s inserts. So that's why I, I keep mentioning that topic. It's funny. When I said we were at two hours and 15 minutes, we're about done. We had a bunch of people. Paul Paul Cashman says, go for three hours. A couple <laughs> thank you. So I'll get a few thanks out of the way. And Alcosa says, thank you, Grant. Scott says, this has been amazing, guys. Thanks so much for this. Thank you all, all for watching. Ziggy says, thanks, Grant, for the education. Thank you, Jeremy, for the interview and access. Stay healthy and happy. Same to you, Ziggy, and everyone else, of course. Uh, Costa says, the green houndstooth were sweet this year. Uh, yeah, the houndstooth were really cool. The retro houndstooth last year were really cool. Yeah, Costa in platinum for sure. Uh, Ziggy says, FYI, I want to go buy a box of Goodwin tonight. I'm looking online and don't see anyone selling it. That is concerning. I feel like they're... That, well, Ziggy, it hasn't come out yet. It's not out till next week. So <laughs> look for it next week for sure. Uh, oh, there you then, then he says, I just found a box and ordered one. Well, there you go. A pre-buy. Awesome. Al G says, uh, great show. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time, guys. Name says, this was really awesome. Al, Name, Ziggy, uh, Costa, everybody who's watching. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Grant, I mean, I'm done if you are, unless you have any parting words, anything else you want to chat about. I, I want to thank you for having me on the show, giving me the opportunity to kind of talk with you and talk shop. I love talking hobby. I want to thank the listeners so much. Thank you guys for supporting our products. Um, you know, uh, we love what we do and, and we're going to try, uh, continue trying to make the best products we can for you. Okay, man. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, um, it, it, I, sometimes I got I to gotta kind of pinch myself because I've had on amazing guests since I started this thing in April. And you're the third person from Upper Deck that's been on the show. I had Chris Carlin on uh, in April. I had Billy on, I believe it was in May. And now yourself and we'll get Tony on and, you know, perhaps some others as well. So, but it's, it's, it's really is a privilege to have you on Grant. I, I want to, and thank you for being so um, talkative, really. I mean, Billy, Billy warned me that the Zen master can be very talkative and uh, I know that that's what he calls you. I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, so thank you for joining. Legion uh, gives a round of applause. Thank you, Legion, for joining in tonight. Anyone, if you're still watching, if you're, if this is your first time tuning into Sports Cards Live, I appreciate it. Thank you for, for watching. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. I would greatly appreciate that. And tune back. And again, the library of episodes is now after this one will be at 28 episodes on YouTube. They live on the channel. They're all long. Every episode is long. I told I told Grant, we'll probably go an hour and a half. And here we are. We're almost at two and a half hours now. So they're long. You know, consume them in parts. You don't have to watch them all at once. YouTube will remember where you left off so you can pick up where you were. Check them out. Give them a watch. And you can even just decide which ones are important to you. More shows coming up a week today. Dr. James Beckett, someone who was uh, crucial in Grant even being here tonight. If it was... If, 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 if Dr. Beckett didn't uh, hire Grant in 1990 to join Beckett, you Grant, you probably wouldn't even be in the in the, in the sports card market in the industry, and you are. So uh, that's great for everybody. Thank you for joining. Watch the show with Dr. Beckett next week. This Saturday, I don't have any guests lined up. That's sort of uh, sort of deliberate. So I might just be on here freestyling by myself or something like that. We'll figure it out, but we'll have something going on. And then the two, the Wednesday and Saturday after that. I'm going on vacation, so I will not be broadcasting those dates. Uh, let me just find out what they are for you guys before we finish this off. Those will be July 25th and July 29th. Uh, right now, the plan is no episode unless I can somehow 
rig something together from Kelowna, from beautiful Kelowna, British Columbia, where I will be. If you're in the Kelowna area, I will be stopping in at Players' Choice if they are open to see Jason and check out what's going on there. So if you're if you're in that area, give Jason a call. See when I'm coming down. Come out. Come meet me. Say hello. I'd love to do that. All right, Grant. Thank you once again. Thank you everybody for tuning in. We're gonna cut this off now, Grant. But wait right there. And um, we'll see you guys all next time. And it's spinning and spinning. We're almost off the air. We Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.